Good morning. It's a beautiful May 25th, 2023. Uh, a wonderful day in downtown Wheaton. Um, uh, I have a, a f news flash from Historic Preservation. On uh, May 25th, 1787, the Constitutional Convention began in Philadelphia to draft the United States Constitution. What does this have to do with uh, Montgomery County? Well, Daniel Carroll, a resident of uh, Forest Glen, uh, was at the convention. Uh, he, he was a big landowner, a, a slave owner as well, but like James Madison, he believed in a um, strong federal government. He had a lot to do with making sure that at least there was a public participation in the election of the president, as opposed to just being elected by Congress. Uh, it's um, amazing how the county gets associated in lots of lots of things. And speaking of lots of lots of things, we have lots of lots of resolutions. Apparently, everyone thinks my signature should go on lots of things, so here we go. Uh, we have the adoption of five resolutions. We have uh, Sandy Spring Preliminary Plan Number One, 1986-03-2B, uh, uh, Sandy Spring Museum Site Plan Amendment 8, 1986-01-10B, uh, Chick-fil-A Site Plan Amendment 8, 2005-002F, uh, Sol Center's Preliminary Plan Amendment 1-2016-008A, uh, Broadmeadow Farm Preliminary Plan Amendment 1-2013-015-A. Uh, uh, I entertain a motion to approve those resolutions. I move that we approve all five of those resolutions. Do I hear a second? I second that. Okay, we're ready. All those in favor say aye. 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 Thank you. Uh, by the way, we have uh, four members present. Uh, we, we expect uh, Roberta Pinero to, to come in a minute or two, but that's, we have a 4-0-0 vote. Uh, now we have approval of minutes. We, we have uh, the May 4th uh, minutes, uh, and uh, three of us are, are eligible to vote on this. Do I hear a motion to approve those minutes? Uh, move that we approve the minutes from uh, May 4th. Do I hear a second? I second. Okay. Uh, no further discussion. All those in favor say aye. 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 All right. Approval of closed session minutes for uh, May 11th and May and, 8th. Uh, Commissioner Pedowin needs to abstain on that one because she was absent. Oh, oh I have to say. So yes. I abstain. Okay. Okay, three zero one. <laughs> well, she she abstains on the May on May meeting minutes yeah. from yes. May fourth, mm -hmm. but right. not we haven't voted on the closed session meeting. Mm -hmm. Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. All right, now we're on closed session minutes for May eleventh and and May eighteenth. I'll entertain a motion to approve. Well, you have open session for May eleventh. Closed open. session for May 11th and then open for May 18th. And everyone is eligible to vote. 
Okay. Oh, it's oh, okay. Uh, not on the <laughs> on the sheet that I have, but okay. So, so again, it, it's open and closed on the eleventh, and and open and closed on the eighteenth. Just open on the eighteenth. That is a closed answer. Okay, I, I got it. I got it. I'm my my misreading. Yeah. Okay, everybody understand. Mm -hmm. I'll entertain a motion. All right. Do we, can we approve them all three as a bulk? Yes, you can. All right. I move that we approve the open session meetings from May 11th and 18th minutes and also the closed session minutes from May 11th. Do I, hear I a sec second that. Okay. Excellent. All those in favor say aye. 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 Four zero zero. Okay. Now we have uh, one regulatory extension. Uh, Willowburn Acres Administrative Subdivision Plan Number... 6 2023 uh, This is their first extension. Do I hear a motion to approve the extension? I motion to approve the extension. I will second that. Okay. Seeing no discussion, all those in favor say aye. 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 Okay. We now have a roundtable discussion from the parks director or deputy director. Thank you, good morning. Yes, Mike Riley is out of town today, so I'm filling in for him for just a few minutes to give you just a very brief update on some parks, um, events, and issues. But before I move through our slides, I did want to mention, as you all know, that the county council is approving the operating budget and the capital, um, the CIP amendments this morning. Um, as you know, the county executive had proposed a budget that would have reduced our funding request by almost half, about $4.3 million. And we were able to find some reductions. Understanding the county's fiscal situation, we understood the importance of identifying where we could cut. Um, but fortunately, last week, the council took a straw vote on the reconciliation list and voted to restore over $1.4 million in funding to our tax-supported budget, which includes funding our contractual and debt um, service, our funding for maintenance for new parks, and funding for some program enhancements, including stewardship of the 27,000 acres of land that we hold in conservation, um, some more funding for uh, expanding our capacity for park activation programming, and for our internship program, which is part of our uh, efforts to increase workforce diversity. So we're very grateful for that and, and looking forward to the, to the vote this morning. Um, so moving on, um, I want to tell you about the Salsa in the Park event that we held recently. Um, it was a two-night event. This was at Germantown Town Center Urban Park. Um, on May 17th, they had a workshop. Um, and approximately, I believe like 100 people attended just the workshop and the actual event itself on May 19th had approximately 350 attendees. So it was a very popular program on a beautiful night, people dancing and getting exercise and engaging with each other, which is exactly what our parks activation program is intended to do. Um, Acoustics and Ales is tonight at Flower Avenue Urban Park. And I do want to take the opportunity to mention that Flower Avenue Urban Park is one of the first parks we focused on as part of our Long Branch Parks Initiative, which is a concerted effort that we started a few years ago to focus on nine parks in the Long Branch area holistically and make improvements using a variety of funding sources so that we could address the wide range of needs in the area. 
Um, in Flower Avenue, we actually used some year-end funding a couple of years ago to make some fast improvements that had a, a significant impact, including new seating and tables, new seat walls, paint, um, and activation has been an important part of the Long Branch Parks Initiative. So this Acoustics and Ales program tonight, with this weather that we're having, I, I believe it's gonna be very well attended. Acoustics and Ales is one of our most popular programs. Sometimes we have um, upwards of 800 to 1,000 people attend these events. So if you haven't been to one already, I, I encourage you to try it. Um, and this is a great location. This park has been really adopted by the community surrounding it. And we have a lot of really well-attended events there. Um, and now I want to tell you a little bit about um, a walkthrough that we had last week for our renovation of Hillendale Local Park. Um, Hillendale Local Park's facility plan was first approved in 2015, um, but a few years later, because of spending affordability limits, we had to um, cut back on, uh, on that project and, and find reductions where we could. Um, it's a 24-acre park. Um, you know, we're adding a, a lot of important amenities that were needed there, including restrooms, a new picnic shelter facility, a playground, courts, um, a, a field, which we got to see last week during our walkthrough, had just been sprigged, which if you don't know what that is, that's um, different from seeding a field. They actually plant little pieces of grass in the field, they water it, and then miraculously, a few weeks later, you have a grass field. Um, so one of the things that I think we're proud of with this park is that in spite of the reductions we had to find and subsequent to that we had a pandemic, there were supply chain issues, inflation, and even so, because of the skill of our park development team, which as you know is led by Division Chief Andy Frank, we are delivering a high quality park that we anticipate will open this fall, so stay tuned on that um, ribbon cutting event. Um, and here I just want to tell you a little bit about some of the upcoming events. Um, in June, we have the Gene Lynch Urban Park opening. June 17th is Mudfest, which people, people love Mudfest. I myself have never participated, um, <laughs> but maybe someone will be able to talk me into it one day. Um, on June 19th, uh, Director Riley had already shared with you um, we are participating in the Scotland Juneteenth Heritage Festival as partners. Um, on June 20th, we are going to demo the building at uh, South Silver Spring Urban Park, the old NTB battery site, which is across the street from Denizens. So that should be fun. We're going to take down a building so we can build a park. Um, we have some Parks Playhouse series dates in June. And on Wednesday evenings, Brookside Gardens holds a Twilight Concert series. So I encourage you all to attend as many of those events as you are able to because they're pretty fun and summer is a great time for programming in parks. And with that, I will take any questions if you have any. Thank you, seeing no questions. Uh, uh, the Hillendale Park is, is a, a great event. Uh, it will uh, be past my uh, tenure here, but I look forward to an invitation <laughs> to come to the open. <laughs> we will absolutely make sure you get one. We look forward to seeing you there. It, it's a, a great routine for the park system. Yeah. Seeing no questions, thank you very well, much for I, your report. I just oh. wanted uh, 
that list of the event, I don't know if you could send it to us. Absolutely. Uh, it, it was very interesting. We could share it with our family and friends mm -hmm. uh, that they can come. That and we can make sure that you're all signed up for um, our newsletters that announce all of those events so that you can regularly get updates on what yeah, we have going on. Yeah, that would be good. And um, as Jeff said, I was part of the Hillland Local Park, so I'm very much interested yes. to see it when it is a, an opening. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. See lots of history. Okay. Are we, do we have to wait to go to item five? We do. See, we do. Good morning. It's still May 25th, 2023 in downtown Wheaton where it's sunny and a beautiful day. We are on item 5, FY23 budget adjustment for the planning department. With that, I'll turn it over to the acting planning director. Good morning, commissioners. Tanya Stern, acting planning director. I'm going to turn it over to Karen Warner to walk us through our uh, request for the budget transfer. Good morning. For the record, Karen Warnick, Management Services Chief for Montgomery Planning Department. Uh, today we're asking for a budget transfer for the FY23 budget, um, $150,000. Uh, we have that savings in um, personnel lapse savings, and we would like to use those funds to help further our FY24 budget agenda, as well as to cover some uh, consultant funding requests that came in over budget. You know, so we, we budgeted one amount, and they came in slightly higher. We would like to use some of those personnel funds to do that. Um, the land use article provides for budget transfers as long as they don't exceed 110% of the available budget. And also, as long, um, any transfers that are exceed $100,000 must be approved by the planning board. I can go through the request, or if you've read the memo and you're fine with it, I will um, stop my presentation there. I am. I, I particularly favor the 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 Powell uh, uh, appointments. Uh, just a, a great program mm -hmm. all the way around to get mm -hmm. people interested and, and get value for the planning department. So I, I think it's just terrific. I didn't have any questions. So for transparency's sake, I, I think it's always um, important in public forums that you discuss it. Discuss each one. Yes. Okay. Thank sure. Yeah, happy to. Um, so we have um, five transfer requests, the Great Seneca Plan, Urban Design Guidelines and Streetscape Standards, $25,000. We had that in the FY24 budget request. It is part of our work program. That was not approved by the County Council, so we're asking for it this year so that we can continue that work program next year. For the Life Sciences Market Study to support the Great Seneca Plan, Connecting Life and Science, the bids came in higher than anticipated, and so we're asking for $20,000 to increase for that project. That is part of our FY23 work program. For the Transportation Data Asset Management Strategy Growth and Infrastructure Policy Update, again, that is part of our FY23 work program and FY24 work program, and the bids came in higher than anticipated in that, and we're asking for an additional $50,000 to cover those bids. For the Silver Spring downtown and adjacent community sector plan, streetscape standards, this 
is part of our work program. And we're asking for $15,000. This is something that we came up during the process that we thought would be important to have as part of the, um, for this um, project. And so it's not something that we had anticipated before, but as we're working through it, thought that this would be an important um, request. And the Partnership for Action, Learning, and Sustainability, or also PALS, is a um, University of Maryland campus-wide program that leverages expertise and the University of Maryland students and faculty to tackle specific sustainability-related issues facing Maryland's diverse communities. And there are four different uh, PALS projects, one for the University Boulevard Corridor Plan, one for the Silver Spring East Plan, one for Emory Grove, and one for the Reforest Montgomery Forest Mitigation Banking Program, and each of those are $10,000. And I wanted to um, just add with regards to the PALS project, um, this is something that we have done before with the University of Maryland. I mean, they've gotten a lot of value, and so we thought it was, this was a great opportunity for us to do four, four PALS projects with them in the next school year. And so for clarity's sake, the reason why I wanted you to, yeah. to go through it is because I can read it, but because I read it doesn't always mean that I've gleaned the correct information from it. And so it's important that uh, if you submit a report that we discuss it um, publicly and so that I can get greater understanding. Um, I do have a question with regards to bids. Um, you suggested that, or you informed us that bids were higher than anticipated. Was there a miscalculation in the um, expected bids? And if there was a miscalculation, was it due to a, an unanticipated cost or increase? The budget is prepared a year and a half in advance. So this budget that for FY23, that some of these bids are just coming in now um, as the projects move along, uh, were prepared a year and a half ago. And so at that time, we're taking our best um, experienced guess at what the bids will come in. As we know, inflation and everything else has occurred in the last uh, year and a half. And so it's, I think it's more that than anything. Thank you. I think the, the way the budget process works that far in advance is the Wagner method. Yes. Wide-angled uh, a guess, not easily refuted. But when you get the bids in, it gets refuted. So that inflation, whatever expenses they uh, experience, and of course we're looking at multiple bids, so it's not just one guy who's, right. who's looking, so it, it happens. Anything else? Yeah, um, uh, especially it happens, uh, you know, in construction costs. Uh, you will see that a lot of times bids comes. Uh, the engineer estimate is the best based on the previous cost. When it comes to uh, professional services, it's even harder because not all of them are alike, and it's hard to figure use some existing cost to guess that what this would cost. So it's just a shot in the dark that they think it may cost them like 50,000. And then when they put it to bed, usually, you know, as Jeff said, they get three or four. Mm -hmm. And uh, when they are all around the same price, then you see, okay, yeah, you know, we didn't hit the right target. And these budget transfers are a very useful and efficient way for the department to take care of some of these deficiencies. I, uh, we used it all the time, and it was the best thing because the department is the best person that knows what they need and how they could transfer these. 
and I'm very glad that this process exists that we could help you. So uh, I'm all for it. So is that a motion I, to approve? I, 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 yes, I uh, <laughs> uh, go to motion to approve the budget transfers. Seconded. Any further discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor say aye. 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 Okay. Thank you for detailing Thank you. the budget transfers. Thank you. Okay, it's May 25th, 2023. This is the planning board. We are on item six, bikeway branding project briefing. With that, I'll turn it over to Jason. I'm going to start. David oh, Onsbacher in the Countywide Planning and Policy Division. So we are here today to give you a briefing on the bikeway branding project. Uh, in a moment, we're going to hear from our, our project manager, uh, John Ryder, also in the Countywide Planning and Policy Division, and our consultant, Kathy Fromid from Guide Studios. But I'm going to just give a quick overview introduction. So this is a different type of project for the Countywide Planning and Policy Division uh, and is based on the premise that it's not enough to build a high-quality bikeway system and expect the masses to flock to it, but like any product out there, you have to market it, you have to sell it, you have to brand it. Uh, so you're going to hear about a number of strategies that the county can pursue to market the emerging bikeway network. Some of them the planning board can, the planning department can take on, others, other agencies, and maybe other stakeholders will need to, to take on. Um, and there are some deliverables uh, that, you'll, that you'll see that are a first step toward realizing this brand. Um, and then John, I think, is going to go over some next steps. Um, as a reminder, this is just a briefing um, to report on the status of this project that we've uh, been working on for a little over a year now. There's no need for the planning board to take any action, but certainly we're, you know, any comments that you have, any thoughts, any discussion that you want to have around this is, you know, of course, uh, something that we can do. Uh, but I'm going to turn it over to John now. Good morning. This is my first time here in a long time. And uh, definitely it was a different planning board the last time I was here. So uh, I'm going to give a little uh, background into this project. So for the record, my name is John Ryder. I'm also with Montgomery Planning, Countywide Policy and Planning Division. <clears throat> I'm here today to give some background into the Montgomery County Bikeway Branding Project. Uh, joining us online is our consultant, Kathy from Guide Studio, who's then going to go into more detail into the project. So this project, the Bikeway Branding Project, was undertaken based on guidance found in the Montgomery County Bicycle Master Plan. Uh, that plan, which was adopted in 2018, creates a vision of an extensive network of well-planned, safe, and comfortable bicycle facilities throughout the county that will connect people to the places that they want to reach. Envisioning the need for a bikeway facility that call, uh, could be truly called world-class, the plan calls for the creation of a new type of bikeway that were named breezeways. The plan also calls for the creation of a unique branding of the breezeway network to show that it is something special within the low-stress bikeway network. So some of the characteristics um, of breezeways that set them apart from the other low-stress 
bikeways within the network. Um, separation from motor vehicles and pedestrians were needed. Designed for faster travel speeds, including higher quality construction, surface materials, and maintenance practices. Minimum deviation along travel corridors and maximum protection at intersections. Street infrastructure, such as lighting and signage, that is cyclist appropriate in scale and placement. And finally, network-specific branding and wayfinding. So designed with bicycle commuters and long utilitarian trips in mind, the Breezeway Network is a subset of the county's more extensive low-stress bicycle network. Based on similar systems found in international locations such as London, Dubai, and the Netherlands, and domestic locations like Indianapolis and Milwaukee, the Breezeway Network takes the cycling experience to the next level by providing safe, separated routes where cyclists can worry less about the stress of traffic or finding themselves on a bikeway that is too constricted for comfortable movement. I often refer to the Breezeway Network as our bicycle interstate system, connecting the major destination centers across the county. Okay, so with that brief history in mind, I would like to briefly introduce the Bikeway Branding Project. So this project was a collaborative effort between Montgomery Planning, Montgomery County Department of Transportation, and our project consultant guide studio with the goal of creating a cohesive brand identity for the bikeway and breezeway networks in, an or in order to enhance awareness of the bikeway system, create a sense of place along the routes, and drive interest in cycling as an irresistible transportation option. So over the past 15 months or so, we met with our stakeholder and steering committees to help define our target audience, create a brand identity, and throughout the wayfinding and designage, uh, uh, excuse me, signage design process. So with that, I will hand over things to Kathy, who will go into more detail on the Montgomery County Bikeway Branding Project. Kathy, all yours. Good morning, everyone. Um, I do apologize to the clerk. It looks like I may need um, somebody to show the presentation that I sent you because it's only allowing me to show my desktop unless you can actually see what is going on. We just see you if you're not seeing your screen, sharing your screen. <laughs> yeah, so, so you probably, like, what do you see now? We, we see a beautiful uh, coast. <laughs> That's Light what I'm afraid of. Let me see if I can. Cinema facing east somewhere. And how about now? Still see the coast? It's still a coast. Yeah, I think I, I did send a presentation and I think somebody might have to share it. It is only allowing me to show my desktop, so. We, we have somebody. Kathy, we're going to try to share the presentation. Bear with us for a moment. Thank you. There we go. Okay. <laughs> a sigh of relief. <laughs> We send it for a reason. All right, proceed to proceed. Okay, if you wanna move forward. So I know on the last slide, thank you everyone for allowing me to join you. It's It's been a, a pleasure working on um, this project with um, John and David. 
um, over the last year. Um, it has also been, it's, it's actually a really, it's exciting, but it's also a really challenging project. Um, and, you know, doing, they articulated in the beginning the, the value and importance of brand, and I'll go into that a little bit. But when you are creating these things, you know, we often tell, we work with a lot of places and we tell them, um, it, you know, there was the, the statement, if you build it, they will come. That's not always the case. <laughs> um, or if you do build it and they will come, you're going to get the same people who are already comfortable um, riding on these routes, um, but you're going to have a harder time converting those who are less comfortable. So brand can provide a lot of tools to help with that level of communication. And I don't know if I can do controls, so someone might have to Next forward slide. this for me. There you go. Yes. Yeah, excellent. So I'm going to kind of go through, I know there was a scope of work that was shared. Um, we, you know, as a brand and wayfinding consultancy, we approach these um, in a little bit different way than what is the final deliverables. So I want to go through a little bit of what went into this. So the first thing that we did is we wanted to pull together a brand strategy. So brand is not that logo that everybody sees that's a part of it. It's one of the tools. But behind it is a strategy that helps you understand how to connect with and communicate with the audiences and allow them to know the things you want them to know about this product, it will say, uh, that you are putting out into the world. So the first step that we did was to get together with all of the stakeholders that were involved um, in making this project happen so that we had a better understanding of the audiences that we were trying to target, what were, how would we communicate the distinct advantages of this system, and along with the end benefits that people could see if they began using it. So this creates a, a brand architecture for this system um, so that it can be used in the appropriate way. You can move to the next slide. And along with that is brand identity. So that is that visual representation that people will see, whether it's coming from communication, you know, on a website, um, or other types of materials that would be out there, but also um, how that will be represented through a signage and wayfinding program, which people would actually see in the physical environment if they're using this system. Next slide. And, and before you can even begin designing the signs, so we have the identity, we have the strategy behind how we'll talk about it. We do need to understand what type of sign system we are going to need for this. And we know um, that with any type of bike facility, there are guidelines around the type of signs. And these are the type of signs that you'll see in most cities and most communities that um, are supporting people biking on roadways or on trails. Um, however, when you want this to be connected to other things in your community, if you want people to know this is going to get them from one place to another, and they could use it as part of their day-to-day -day lives, that sign program has to be a bit more robust than what you would get from the MUTCD manual. Um, so we devised and worked through a wayfinding framework to help us understand the type of signs and elements that would be most appropriate for this system um, so that we could create a kit of parts that could work on both the bikeways as a whole and then the breezeways that John talked about um, that would be a little bit more specific so that we could really highlight that this is a different experience for people. Next slide. 
And so from, you know, understanding your brand and having that identity in place and, and understanding what we need to do from a signage and wayfinding standpoint, we were able to bit, pull together what we call the kit of parts of design. And so really this is actually a, a standard of design for sign types and other types of elements um, for the bikeway and breezeways facilities. And in this, it actually goes into a lot of detail and it's set up in a way that you can go out now and actually begin um, implementing this sign program. So there is an entire um, system and a manual for its use that has been pulled together. Next slide. And so those guidelines are, are in place for both the use of the brand, as well as the use of the signage and wayfinding program. And along with that, um, you need to have an action plan for, for how you move this forward. So there was also an implementation plan um, that was created to help understand what are the next steps that you'll need to take um, to get this, this program up and running, um, and to make sure that it's successful for you so that the investment that has been made in its development um, will be seen. Next slide. So why branding? So this is something I felt it, it was important to, to bring to the table again. Um, experience is how you define the products and services for any place. And, and you know, obviously bike facilities are, are place oriented. Um, and brand is that tool that defines how you market, you communicate, and you engage with your users. Um, so when we started this project, when we were working through that brand strategy, um, it was important that we identify for the entire group what branding can do for this. So it would help you communicate and attract. So it would communicate the fact that it's safe. These systems are made to be direct connectors um, within the county that is meant to make you feel more comfortable and that this would be an irresistible option for transportation in the area. Branding also helps make it legible. It, it creates this, the ability to communicate appropriately about the bikeway system, how to use the system, how to make it understandable from the perspective of a variety of audiences. So, Doing a brand exercise helps you understand those audiences and make sure that your communication is meeting them where they are. And it also will allow you to communicate about different experiences and opportunities to encourage different use of the bikeway system. Um, as I go through it, you'll understand from the different perspectives of the audiences, there's different ways that people will use the bikeway system, but we're not going to capture people who are unfamiliar if we don't have the appropriate way to communicate. This is all the things that branding can do for that. Next slide. So the goals that we established for this project early on um, with the stakeholder team is that we wanted the Montgomery County Bikeways brand to help elevate the narrative of bicycle infrastructure as something that invites all riders from all backgrounds to feel safe, secure, and welcome. It was also meant to create immediate recognition and understanding of the type of experience a user can expect from these facilities. The brand would also help with building awareness about bicycling as a competitive and irresistible <laughs> um, transportation choice. 
Um, encourage casual recreational users to consider a healthier, sustainable, and budget-friendly transportation option, and also help the system um, steward clear communication about the benefits of its use as well as the ease of use. You can go to the next slide. And so, you know, part of that strategy is setting a vision for that system. It was really important that this brand help communicate that this is an equitable system, that it is for all, and it is being used by all people for multiple purposes, um, that people have helped create and define the system within their own communities for uses that they need, and that communities feel complete and more accessible. It is also the vision that the bikeway system is connective, that the neighborhoods become more connected, connections between destinations become clearer, and people feel more connected to their community. And that it also provides a different perspective. I think anybody who has um, used, uh, you know, has biked on these type of facilities know that you can explore and see things in a very different way than you would from a vehicle. So this is also meant to create a different perspective of their communities and how they work and live and play, and also considering that idea of 15-minute living. Next slide. So for, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on the target audiences, but target audiences are really important. And when we talk about target audiences, it doesn't mean that we're not talking to everybody, but it does mean that the messages are really focused on certain individuals because they are going to be the ones that are going to convert easiest. So for this exercise, for us to, to build the correct key messaging around this brand, we focused on the everyday users. And these are people who bike because they have to. Um, these are the ones who would use it to get to work, to get to school, um, to get to shopping. And right now, they're probably doing it in some unsafe ways because there's not facilities out there that they're aware of um, that can allow them to make themselves feel more comfortable, but they're doing it because they have to. So they're, they're somebody that we can easily reach um, to, help, to allow them to know these systems are being put in place for them. And then there's also the recreational users that we're focusing on. These are people who have some degree of comfort um, using their bikes for exercise and relaxation, but they may not do it often and they may never have considered it as part of their everyday life. These are another group that we can also um, reach in the early stages of this brand. Next slide. So, you know, part of this is to understand what are the distinct advantages? What are we telling people <laughs> um, that is going to help them feel more comfortable and understand that this is a system for them to use? So we have four distinct advantages that we've pulled together. These are going to convert into key messages. These are going to be part of the system of communication that's going to go out to those key audiences as this brand comes to life. So the first message was skip the traffic. The Montgomery County bikeway system is extensive enough to get you to where you need to go. The network of breezeways and local neighborhood greenways offers hundreds of routes that lead to every corner of the county and beyond. Next message is safety first. Biking can seem a bit scary, but the Montgomery County bikeway system makes the experience safe and easy. Hundreds of miles of protected bike paths and lanes offer riders peace of mind. And when you do have to venture into the streets, route markings and prompts to drivers, let vehicles, let vehicle traffic know who's the boss. Next slide. Enjoy your journey. 
Everything flashes by in an instant when you're in the car, but a journey by bike allows you to really take in everything Montgomery County has to offer. You'll get a better appreciation for your rolling topography, picturesque scenery, natural wonders, and of course our diverse and fun urban centers. And the last message is this is for you. For those who rely on bikes to manage the needs of everyday life, the bikeway system has your back. We want to ensure that you have safe routes to school, work, and everything in between. Our system is built for you in mind so that you have confidence to navigate life with comfort and ease. Next slide. And as part of that strategy, that all comes together in what we call positioning statement. And positioning statements are, are internal statements, but they are the stepping stone to external communication. But these internal statements are important because any of the organizations who will be stewarding this project forward and ensuring that the bikeway system all gets into place, all they all need to be on the same page about what the system is so that the actions that they take moving forward can serve the purpose of the bikeway system. So the positioning statement that was created is the Montgomery County bikeway system is an extensive network of well-planned, safe and comfortable bike facilities that create an equitable transportation experience. This network connects people to jobs, schools, shopping, dining and recreation opportunities while elevating the personal and economic health of our residents and communities. Next slide. So once we have that strategy in place, it makes it a lot easier <laughs> for us to move into um, the thing that is going to be the most recognizable element for anybody who um, is looking at communications from the bikeway system or about the bikeway system or looking for, for signs and other elements to alert them that they are on the system. So this is a countywide network and there is this logo is what was created to identify um, this system in particular. Next slide. Um, we also established some naming conventions for how you will talk about it. So the formal name is the Montgomery County Bikeway System, talking about the whole system. There's some informal shorthands you can use. So Montgomery County Bikeways or Montgomery Bikeways. Next slide. There is also, um, you know, a breakup of route classification logos. So there is the bikeways. So these are gonna be, you know, your, um, you're comfortable in, in safe routes that have been identified um, throughout the system, and that would be identified through um, this green logo and mark that says bikeways. But there's also that interstate system that John talked about, the breezeway system, and we wanted to make sure that there was an identifier that would alert people to that part of the system as well, but that they felt like they belonged together. Next slide. And once that identity and those those elements were established, it allowed us to create that kit of parks parts for the system. So the anything that is in green is really going to be on a bike ray route. So there's a variety of sign types because there's not one sign that can do the job of everything. And, and that is one of the things that we see in um, even in some of the uh, in MUTCD and in how they define what you do, everything looks the same and <laughs> it looks the same in every city. Um, so this is really helping to identify these specific routes for them. And there's sign types such as a kiosk that can have directional maps, can help you understand where you are and where you can connect to 
things within your community and in other routes. Um, there are directional signs that are going to help you understand um, not only uh, additional connection points for the route that you're on, but to other places that you can go. So where you want to get off. So this is sort of your off ramp information. Um, trailblazers to let you know you're still on the route. Um, amenity and service signs. Um, some other key identifiers, especially when you're in areas that are not um, that could be in a neighborhood or um, that are not clear and you're not quite sure if, if you should be there. We needed to have elements to ensure that that we can alert people that they are in the right place, as well as jurisdictional IDs. Whenever you're dealing with a system that is um, as extensive as this one and people are moving from one place to the another, another, it's really important to <laughs> alert them to where they are. Next slide. And again, when it moves to the breezeway, the color shifts, um, the messaging shifts um, so that you can um, know when you are on a different type of facility. Um, but you might see, you know, when this is out in the world, you might actually see directions to a, a, a regular bikeway route, um, even when you're on a breezeway or vice versa. Next slide. And so all of these, you know, this is this is a lot that went into creating these pieces, parts, you know, the brand identity as well as the, the sign program. So it's important that we create instructional manuals for how to use these things. So there is a brand style guide for how to use the visual elements of this brand. Next slide. And there's also a, a standards manual for the sign program that shows you um, how these need to be built, what are the different components of the sign program, how they should be used, um, so that it can ever. In the reason for all of this is that you want things to remain visually consistent because that's the only way a brand, a visual brand, actually works is if you're using um, those same visual elements consistently and people are seeing them over and over. And that is how you build trust and that is how you build understanding um, so that they know they're in the right place at the right time. Next slide. So the other piece to this was pulling together implementation recommendations um, for the system because it's all great to to do all this work to develop your brand and understand that strategy behind the brand and, and build this kit of parts for the sign program so that you can use. but now you got to use it. So the implementation plan and recommendations is a mix of a lot of things. So it's a mix of uh, communication planning and marketing um, and also making sure that you're actually getting the system put in place. Next slide. So the implementation recommendations are a way to touch back to that strategy. So it was important that we looked at those goals and objectives that we established early on to make sure that um, the recommendations we made to move forward were going to help you achieve these goals um, when you begin using the system. Next slide. So one of the first ones that we're recommending, and this is this is something that we've actually done with another organization um, here in Ohio. But we did make the recommendation to create a Montgomery County Bikeways Coalition. And this would be a coalition of um, a variety of different entities who are committing to support the system in a variety of ways. They're, you're supporting it from 
ensuring that you have great experiences that you're trying to have people connect to, or you're committed to helping communicate and market the system within your own community or your own organization. Um, we worked with um, the uh, Miami Conservancy District in Southwest, Southwest Ohio, who stewarded the Great Miami Riverway uh, project. And the Great Miami Riverway is 99 miles of paved and water trails that extend um, from Hamilton, Ohio, all the way up to Sydney and cross through um, the, the Dayton area along the Great Miami River. And that organization, the Conservancy District, was the one who initiated the project, um, but they also realized that they could not be responsible for the marketing and communications all on their own. And they really needed the support from a variety of different organizations to help them implement sign program, market, communicate, consider the type of events and uh, amenities that were within each of these communities that these trails connected to so that they could create a broader experience. Um, so this is one of the recommendations that we are making um, as well. So it's, it's a big ask and it's a big consideration, uh, but it has proved to be very successful for the Great Miami Riverway. Next slide. Develop a communications plan. So there's a variety of tools that are found in your brand strategy and in your brand identity system, but they need to be put into action. So this communications plan will help to clarify that messaging and understand where that messaging is going out to. Um, so that would be our next recommendation. So now you have that foundation of what the Montgomery County Bikeways is. Um, now it's time to understand where this messaging is going to go out to. Next slide. Establish a brand champion program. So the brand champion program is sort of connected to actually the last two. So if we're saying build a coalition, have a communications plan, this brand champion program is the toolkit that we are giving um, the different stakeholders and stewards of the bikeway system. So the communities where the system lives, um, they are going to need <laughs> the information and materials to help communicate about the system. So building this champions program um, allows them to get updated information on what is going on, you know, when new parts of the system are coming online, um, how they can talk about it within their communities, how they can um, create uh, more ambassadors, perhaps through school systems and through employment systems. Uh, but the brand champion program actually gives the tools in place so that they can do their jobs and help champion this forward. Next slide. Build a brand management plan and process. This is a recommendation that we give any of our, um, almost all of our brand clients are um, government entities. So we work with a lot of municip municipalities and um, downtowns and districts and, and other parks and, and trail systems. You can't do <laughs> this work well if you don't have a really great way to manage your brand um, and have processes in place for how you use it. So this is something that we um, recommend for any entity. So once you identify who is going to be responsible for this brand, um, they have to have a way to control how it's being used, 
um, control uh, who is using it and how it's going out and, and you know, monitoring how it's being reproduced um, for different things. So this is a, just a general recommendation we make for everybody. Next slide. Create content to tell the bikeway story. Um, so when it comes to marketing and promotion, um, most people are going to listen to others, not necessarily to you. <laughs> so if you're those key messages that we put up there, if they are only coming from your organization, some people will listen to it, sure, but you're going to have broader reach. If you can get stories about those distinct advantages coming from others in your community. So that's what we mean by creating content um, and making sure that the that people in the community who have used this system can talk about how great it is for them and how much it helps them and that they can um, talk about those things that you've identified as your distinct advantages for the system. That is going to have a much far reach. Um, this is a big ask for, for organizations who maybe don't necessarily do a lot of content development, uh, but there are some easier ways. And if you have a good communications plan built, um, you can build that into the process. Next slide. Establish a Montgomery County Bikeways website. This is another, if you want a place for people to go to help them understand, is this safe? How do I use it? Where can I pick it up? you know, what can and can I not do um, on this system, you need to have an information hub that people can easily find. And, and we know that a lot of times these type of projects, the information about them can get buried on a county or a city's website. And that's not going to make it easier or usable for others. So our recommendation is that you do make a dedicated site specifically for this system. Next slide. Also social media policy and guidelines. Again, all of these things are interconnected and they connect back to that communications plan. Um, social media is, is just the route that almost everybody is using to get information out quickly to the masses. Um, and I, I don't think the, the bikeways is gonna be any exception from that. So it's really gonna be important that there's some policies and guidelines set in place for that use. Next slide. We're also recommending conducting a sign system pilot installation. Um, this is identifying specific routes that you want to see the sign program go into place. So these would be, you know, a bikeway route or a breezeway route that are, is relatively like the experience that you want people to have. Get the sign pro program up to demonstrate proof of concept. We did this um, here in Cleveland. There's a robust um, bikeway system here for both on and off-road trails in the greater Cleveland area. And that master plan was developed and then a pilot program was installed. Um, it is a great way to understand um, best practices and how you're going to program these routes um, to identify if there's any adjustments or changes that need to be made. Um, but we do recommend that you do that so that um, you feel comfortable moving forward with implementing the system. Next slide. And then last but not least, we were also tasked with considering how public art can be a part of these systems. In, in a lot of bike, bikeway and trail programs, public art really is 
um, a way to create sense of place, engagement, introduce people to the system, and just make their trips more joyful. So we do have um, a variety of uh, recommendations. I think go to the next slide. I think they might be all in here. No, they're not on, yeah, all in here, but they were probably, I think about eight different ways that we were recommending public art be used. Um, and they can be considered for each of the places and system. They obviously do not have to be done in every single one, but there is recommendations from, from larger scale public art to smaller, low hanging fruit, easily um, uh, implemented options for public art that was in the recommendation plan. The next slide. So there are some next steps and John, um, do you wanna pick up here? Happy to, John Ryder again for the record. Um, Matt uh, from Montgomery Department of Transportation, do you wanna speak through this or would you like me to? I'll let you take the lead, but I can always jump in if we, uh, if you need me to answer any questions or give me more context. Great, um, can we bring that map slide back up please? So the map image that uh, you'll see in just a second is the proposal for our pilot project where we are going to test out our new branding and wayfinding and signage system. Um, this is in the North Bethesda area. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the map image you see is the proposed route that we would be signing and we chose this location because um, one, it has a good variety of bikeway facilities. We have bikeways, we have breezeways, we have on-street and off-street facilities. We have bicycle only and then also mixed pedestrian and bicycle facilities. Um, so we, we kind of have the, the gamut of all of the bike facilities that we would want to sign. Um, we are um, putting this out um, or excuse me, we are working through the um, contract process, I believe, right now. Um, hopefully getting this going in the next couple months with this project running probably through fall, I would imagine. Um, and then we will have a signway signage plan. I Is the breezeway in place right now? It's there. So the breezeways that do exist are the on the Josiah Henson um, trail and then to the south, the Bethesda Trolley Trail. Does the Josiah Henson Trail that is um, off of Lay Hill Boulevard connect to this or no? There's another Henson Trail like- That's the Matthew Henson Trail. That's the Matthew yeah. Henson Trail, okay. Um, so the, the line across the top of the map that heads off um, uh, east to west is the Josiah um, Henson Trail. Uh, which runs along Montrose, the old Montrose Parkway, uh, which is now Josiah Henson Parkway. Um, the Bethesda Trolley Trail goes all the way from Washington, D.C., up through uh, Bethesda, up through North Bethesda, um, and I believe terminates at the Matthew Henson Trail. Does it connect to the Matthew Henson Trail? Uh, no, it, it, it terminates currently in, in the North Bethesda White okay. area. So there you have it, yes. Um, Matt, any other details I missed that you'd like to add in? Yeah, I'll, I'll just note that another reason that we picked 
um, this area is that the bikeway network here is growing. Um, we have a lot of projects that are in the pipeline, so this is something that we can expand the pilot to as those facilities open. And also we can extend this south as funding allows along the Bethesda Trolley Trail to downtown Bethesda. Um, so but this gives us a chance to test out the signage and, you know, learn whether we need to make any changes to the overall planning for this based on how it works out in the, in the real world um, before we ex begin expanding it to other parts of the county. Thank you. Uh, for the record, Jason Sartori, Chief of Countywide Planning and Policy. I just wanted to highlight as we close out here that, uh, you know, this has been a, a great project that we've worked on over the last year plus with MCDOT and other partners. And uh, you see even as we go forward with this type of uh, actual signage implementation, it's still a continued partnership where we are working with the consultant to help develop the, the, the plan for implementation along with MCDOT. But obviously, we at the planning department don't put signs in. Uh, the, 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 the Department of Transportation does, and so they, they'll be the ones actually producing the signs and getting them put in place. And so it's, it's just this continued partnership with them, and it's been something I think that we've really enjoyed being able to, to partner with. Um, I have a question because, um, first of all, it's it's a wonderful project. I I totally understand and support it, but uh, I have a few questions because, number one, I Parks Department had a program similar to this that you know, I think it took a long time uh, because we started creating the brand and thought that we're going to do the signage and the more that we went into it it was more and more and more and it ended up to be about a 300 uh, page it was park signage standard and operation manuals for trails and that include bikeways so the parks department uh, came up with that and then they started to implement it and they did a pilot and I think it was done on the Beach Drive and Rock Creek Trail. I think the first one that we started was Rock Creek Trail. So how is that coming into with this one? Because from people point of view, there is no distinction who owns what. Bikeways are bikeways and trails are trails and I'm wondering that or this um, uh, branding includes, you know, pedestrian gonna go there as well. It's not just the bikeway. And you know, we don't have just a bikeway only, correct? We have trails and bikeways. Let Steph have your first question on the parts yeah. and then go on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, John Ryder for the record. Um, I think to answer the first part of your, your question, the the way that we designed this system, it was hoped that um, it would be adopted countywide. So we had, um, you know, the cities of Gaithersburg, Rockville, Tacoma Park, um, in our stakeholder, or excuse me, steering uh, committees. Um, you know, they they have jurisdiction of what kind of signs they want to design. But the hope was that, you know, whether you were in Gaithersburg, Tacoma Park, downtown Silver Spring. Damascus, if you saw that green cog or that cranberry cog, you would have a very clear distinction of what kind of experience you would have while traveling on the bikeway system or the breezeway system. Um, we also realized that our breezeways connect outside of the county. Um, a lot of our trails, whether it's the Capitol Crescent Trail, the uh, Metropolitan Branch Trail, 
those go into DC. Again, DC already has logoing for those trails. So we wanted to make sure that this system could be used in parallel with other branding types. So if, you, you know, if you're traveling along the MBT in um, downtown Silver Spring, Tacoma Park, into Washington, DC, even though the sign changes at the border, we would hope that there would be you know, a sign that says, welcome to Washington, DC, has our Breezeway logo and the MBT logo, so that as you travel out of the district, you understand that the experience of the bikeway system is going to continue. That should also work with the Pike, uh, excuse me, uh, Montgomery Parks wayfinding system on the park trails network. So even though the signing changes as you travel along any of these routes, we, the experience should be the same, and the signage should convey that to the user. So uh, one, if I can translate, you're going to have a top-line logo on the park standard sign. Um, that would be up to parks. That would be up you to haven't coordinated so, so with parks. Parks department ha was a big part of the of the stakeholder group. Uh, they're very supportive of this effort. They do want to maintain the system that they put together. Yeah, um, it was just brand new, and right. a lot of money was spent on that. But as John's saying, they can work together. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if the parks department is amenable to it, I think that the 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 bikeway branding can extend into the park system or the parks can extend outward, but they were designed to work together with parks heavily involved. Yeah. And David, Dave, David, can I answer real quick? Yes. This is Kent from it for the record. Um, this, this is not an unusual issue for any, any system that is as large and as extensive as this one is that is reaching into other communities and other parks. Um, and other trail systems. And so that management, and you're absolutely correct, people don't care necessarily for what the brand is, um, but brand helps signal things, okay? So this, while this is a brand, it's really a signalization that you are on a specific network or a specific route um, that is meant to have a, a certain quality, but that doesn't supersede the fact that you might be entering into a park system where that trail still lives. So we often say when you have these connective systems, they have the job of getting people to the front door. <laughs> so, you know, if you're, you know, coming up to a park or connecting to a trail that's going in through the park system, it is meant to say, okay, you're right now you're, you're on, you know, this breezeway. And then there should be information from your park system that says you're entering into this area. And then the breezeway system should still be there, but become, but it does become secondary to the park system. But this is really meant to be connected throughout the county um, and beyond, as, as John mm -hmm. mentioned, but it is built to be flexible in that way so that the hierarchy of information in terms of helping people identify and understand where they are and what part of the system they're in um, is meant to be flexible with other um, areas and other Thanks. sign programs. Thank you. Commissioner Pedowin, any other questions? Uh, the other question that I had was in regard to the language of colors, okay? Um, I, I like <laughs> the cranberry, but colors have their own language. And, um, you know, when the breeze, I, I, I'm just curious because you said that's not a standard. When you come from the comfort 
of green to blue to you know red, it sort of gives you the opposite kind of feeling that you're going from somewhere that is more comfortable to something that is a little bit more cautionary. Cautionary. So I'm wondering that why is this reverse? I love the color. It's just that I think that when you go to the red or uh, that kind of more progressive color, it sort of is less ease and more ease is in blue and green. At least that's how um, general public, I'm one of the general okay. public think about. So just questioning that. Kathy, do you want to take that? Sure. So, you know, there were, there's a, a few reasons why that type of color was suggested for this. Um, one, we did want it to stand out much differently because the breezeway system is meant to be different. Um, it is also meant to be the, I would call it the highway system <laughs> of the bikeway trails. Is that a good way to talk about it, John? Sort of that interstate, you're, yes. you're moving, it's a little faster paced. So it is a more energetic color, but the facilities itself, the environment you're in is much more comfortable. Now, when you're on the bikeway system, there's a variety of facilities that you might be on, including sharing roadway with other vehicles. So the green color can be a little bit more comfortable and more soothing, even if the environment isn't quite there. So they kind of work in concert. So I do understand what you're saying, but there was a, a method to the madness in terms of selecting that color. I got it. Um, and, and if I could just jump in, this is uh, Matt Johnson. I didn't uh, do the for the record thing earlier, but uh, Matt Johnson, uh, bikeways coordinator with MCDOT. Uh, we also are limited in what we can do based on the manual on uniform traffic control devices. So for example, Maybe we'd prefer the breezeways to be green and the regular bikeways to be cranberry. Um, but the, you know, the issue is that um, we have green signs everywhere in the environment because the, the guide signs are green in the manual. So we can't go and say, well, all those exit signs in 270 should be a different color so that the bikeway signs stand out. Like those are going to be green, right? Those have to stay green. So if we want something distinctive, it can't be green. And, and I, I understand the, the point that you're making, um, Commissioner. Um, but I don't think that people are going to associate the cranberry with a danger color when they see the facilities that we're building. These will be the highest quality facilities in the county, um, perhaps in the region as well. Um, and, you know, if you're biking on the Capitol Crescent Trail today, which is or, or, or walking or jogging on it, it's a great facility. And if we made those signs cranberry, I don't think someone's going to suddenly think, oh, this trail is a dangerous place now because the branding is cranberry. Uh, the trail is the same as it was before. Um, you know, it's a beautiful trail, uh, lots of foliage, nice wide path, lots of people on it. So I think, you know, this is a, a pretty minor part of the overall experience, but I think it's important um, because it helps to call attention to this and it will stand out in that sea of other green and white signs that exist out there in the environment. You won't see any other cranberry signs. And I want to sign this yeah. color is not reserved in the manual. So that's one reason we could, oh, we could okay. use it. Okay. Well, that, cool. that makes very much sense. I have one last question. And Please. that is in regard to maintenance and operation uh, and the funding, uh, because this is a huge project. And I, I appreciate what, uh, you know, uh, Catherine uh, has talked about all those implement implementation strategies. Do you have any funding? And if the funding, because you are not the implementer, 
who's going uh, is it going to be DOT? Is it going to be in the DOT CIP? Because if you don't do that, it's not going to happen. And I'd like to see this to happen. Right, exactly. And I, I'd like to ask Matt to respond to that. Yes, we're aware that this is a major undertaking, um, and we are still working out exactly how this network will get built over time. The good news is we don't have to brand the entire county all at once, because that would be a huge undertaking to do all at once. The way we really see this uh, network taking shape is that as capital projects are built, we include the signage in those projects. So, for example, you will not, not this, not the commissioners who are currently on the board, but the previous board heard about the Fenton Street cycle track a couple uh, a couple months ago, um, and I'm the project manager for that project as well. And we would likely install some of these signages as part of the Fenton Street cycle track, right? It's not going to be the whole network, but it'll be, you know, we'll be installing it along that new facility as it, you know, as as it uh, is developed. Over time, that means we'll start having gaps where we have this piece gets built. Uh, this is the Fenton Street is part of the um, the Mid County Breezeway, and then Amherst Avenue, which I think you're about to have a major referral hearing on, or, or may have recently had, is also part of that same project up in Wheaton. Um, and so it might also have those signs, but then we end up having a gap between Silver Spring and Wheaton. So that's the sort of situation where the county might come in with a bikeways program or with a capital program to fill in that gap and go ahead and put those signs in place so that we have those two facilities connected. But this is going to take years to build out as the network is built. Uh, it doesn't make sense to install breezeway signage on, on streets where the facility hasn't been built yet either, right? Because in some cases, uh, we have to build we have to build a low stress network first before we can put these these signs in place. So it's going to be a big undertaking. I'm sure we're going to learn as we go um, things. Um, but I think the intent is that mostly this will be implemented through capital programs um, as they get built. But we probably are going to need to have some additional capital funding for wayfinding as part of this in the future. But we're not quite at that stage yet. Thank, Thank you. you. And I could be your champion if you need help. OK. Commissioner Bartley. <laughs> Yeah, I really enjoyed the presentation. I can't wait for this to um, take shape. Uh, I'm particularly interested in you all uh, doing something like this east of um, Georgia Avenue uh, and north of Randolph Road. I think there's a unique opportunity there because development is coming in that area, and I think that you should take advantage of the opportunity to install bike lanes there. I do have a question about the logo. Uh, I love bikes. My family loves bikes. I have a section of my garage that is stacked with bikes. So I'm excited about this. But when I look at the logo, um, one thing I don't like about bikes is working on bikes. I don't like to get <laughs> grease on my hands or cut my hands. And so um, if you're not familiar with working on bikes, the familiarity of a chain sprocket is not universal. But there is universal identification with regards to the silhouette or sh or stick figure of a bike, so to speak. And so um, when you're looking at higher participation levels and higher brand identity, the sprocket does communicate to those who use bikes regularly and have attempted to, um, you know, put back on a chain. Um, but um, to the person that is not familiar with bicycling other than, you know, um, seeing it on TV or watching other people ride, I would consider, um, you know, integrating a, a, another symbol in that logo. But other than that, I, I, I'm excited for the plan and you all went into a deep dive, so to speak. I'm on another board now. It's a deep dive 
And um, but you guys went into a well thought out deep dive on this, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know what you can do with the color comment, but but I kind of had the same initial reaction that that the cranberry is more cautionary than the green is uh, inviting. But uh, who am I? Which is what my wife asked when I got home. Um, uh, other than that. Any other comments? Dave, I'm going to send you a picture of my bicycle corner of my garage. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for a very extensive uh, presentation. Thank you for our consultant and uh, DOT uh, coming in. Uh, the commissioner are for sure our partners in, the, in this, and we have uh, a lot of interest in going forward. So thank you very much. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. It's May 25th, 2023. We are at the Planning Board on Item 7, Local Government Annual Reporting to the Maryland Department of Planning. Uh, we have um, staff who's going to present this to us, please. So for the record, my name is Jay McCurgy, and this is Colin McNamara, and we're both GIS specialists with the ITI division within the Planning Department. We're here to present the Local Jurisdiction Annual Report for the Maryland Department of Planning for calendar year 2022 and ask for your approval to transmit the report to the County Council and to MDP. <clears throat> Since 2009, MDP has been mandated by state law to collect land use and development data from all jurisdictions with planning or zoning authority in the state of Maryland. For the calendar year 2021 report, 15 out of 23 counties and 44 out of 108 municipalities participated in this exercise. A database has been created by MDP that collects data on a yearly basis, which provides MDP an annual snapshot and historic pattern of growth-related changes and the amount of permit activity within the state. The data for the prior calendar year, along with the questionnaire answers, are then used to create a yearly status report. It's basically a development inventory of Maryland, which is then made available to the public and policymakers. This report has several benefits for Montgomery County. It is used to evaluate public needs and allocated resources and conservation and targeted growth areas, what the state calls their PFA or priority funding areas. It is used as a reference during general assembly legislation sessions to make informed decisions. It's used to identify topics for comprehensive plan updates, and it's also used to review grant requests. The ultimate goal is for this report to assist the state in guiding necessary programs, services, and other resources to Montgomery County in an efficient manner. Our role at the planning department is to collect data from various sources, analyze, and then map the data. We also fill out a questionnaire. The data is collected from our in-house data sources, such as our parcel file, the Hanson Development Tracking System, and our zoning maps. But we also collect data from external agencies like DPS, MCPS, MCDOT, SHA, and from Data Montgomery, the county's open data portal. The narrative portions of the report are answered by staff from our countywide planning and policy division. In addition to providing MDP with the report, we upload GIS data resulting from our different analyses to MDP servers, 
who then use our data for their own statewide analysis. The questionnaire sent to us by MDP contains five categories, all pertaining to land use patterns and development. MDP's main emphasis is the locational relationship between these five subject matters and the state's priority funding area. This helps the state guide them on whether they need to make any adjustments to the PFA boundary, which they consider their true investment area for the state. Now I'm gonna hand off to Colin to illustrate some of the results for calendar year 2022. Good morning. Good morning. For the record, my name is Colin McNamara with ITI, and next I'm going to go over some highlights, highlights included in the annual report for calendar year 2022. First, we mapped our master plans. In 2022, the department completed one site-specific master plan, while five more area plans were in progress. Two countywide plans were also completed, while there were two countywide plans that kicked off, including the pedestrian master plan and the rustic roads functional master plan update. Additionally, of the 30 new subdivisions approved in 2022, 21 or 70% are located within priority funding areas. As far as transportation improvements, there were 130 site-specific major transportation improvement projects. 69, or about 53% of them, were located within the priority funding areas. One new school, Harriet Tubman Elementary School, opened in Montgomery County last year. However, three schools, one of each elementary, middle, and high school, underwent major revitalizations or expansions. We provided MDP with the amounts of residential and commercial growth within and outside the priority funding areas based on data obtained from our land use Hansen tracking system. 619 residential permits consisting of 1,530 residential units were issued in 2022, 84% of which were within priority funding areas. This falls slightly below the county's 87% average over the past 10 years. Compared to other counties in Maryland, Montgomery County has consistently had a higher percentage of residential permits located within its priority funding areas. Most of the commercial permits issued, issued for projects last year fell within the priority funding areas where 86% of the county's commercial growth in 2022 were located inside the PFAs. That is lower than in 2021 and lower than the nine-year average of 89%. As with residential permits, the average of Montgomery County's commercial square footages approved are more concentrated in the PFAs compared to other jurisdictions within the state of Maryland though there's quite a bit of variability from year to year. We also provided MDP with data about land preservation, including transferable development rights, building lot terminations, and agricultural easements. In 2022, 242 acres were preserved via 46 TDRs, while there were no new BLTs. Additionally, there were 53 forest conservation easements totaling 83 acres. Not surprisingly, 
most of our land preservation occurs outside the PFAs. The Montgomery Parks Department purchased 12 new parks and preserved 567 acres in 2022. Generally, statewide, there has been a steady decrease in land preservation over time. However, Montgomery County does account for a major share of land preservation statewide, representing anywhere between 8 to 47% of all new land preserved in Maryland for any given year. Next, we provided land use statistics. The graphic on the left shows the proportions of each land use category found within priority funding areas, while the graphic on the right shows countywide land use distribution. The major land uses within priority funding areas are single family, detached, housing, road rights of way, and parks, while the largest countywide land uses include the ag agricultural reserve, single-family detached housing, and parks. <clears throat> As shown in this line plot, county land uses have remained relatively static from year to year. Exceptions are for parkland, which has trended slightly up, and vacant land, which has trended down. The graphic on the right shows how compared to Maryland overall, Montgomery, hold, Montgomery County holds a higher share of residential land uses within the priority funding areas by both land area and the number of parcels compared to the rest of Maryland. Finally, we provided the results of a generalized development capacity analysis. Parcels with capacity must be residentially zoned, vacant, or parcels with redevelopment potential and not located in an environmentally sensitive area or HOA. 89% of the parcels meeting those criteria are located within the PFA. Compared to 2018, the number and acres of parcels with development capacity have gone down, but the actual unit capacity has gone up. An, ex an explanation could be that parcels that do have capacity also have higher units per acre thresholds or density than the parcels did in 2018. Now back to Jay to discuss next steps. As far as the next steps go, uh, we're seeking your approval here today to submit the report for 2022 to the County Council and to the Maryland Department of Planning, and we need to do this by July 1st. Um, subsequently, the data and maps will be uploaded to MDP servers, allowing the state to create their own end of the year analysis and reports for calendar year 2022. So thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Any questions from commissioners? Yes. Uh, these are really good data. And I see that the last line in here that is uh, MDP is going to do an analysis. Do we do an analysis ourselves? Because these are all the measures and the criteria. But there, I do not know at one point you provide some kind of analysis that what this means and how we can make what is the shortcoming and where we are doing well and if there are shortcomings, how we can improve. I do not know that you let that to be done by a state or do we have it or is there any way that we use those analysis to our advantage? So <clears throat> that's a great question. Um, mainly 
our role is just to compile. We're just stenographers. We I just understand. grab all the data, compile it, and then we send it on to MDP. I don't know of a comprehensive project where somebody takes our report and does a analysis or does a what does this actually mean. Um, as far as I know, it's been used in various parts of other reports. I think it's some of it's been used maybe at the semi-annual. Some of the charts have been take you know have been used. Uh, but no one's actually uh, taken this report and and did an analysis on it, uh, right. what Even, the numbers mean, because that's not that wasn't the, the the objective of this project. I know, but I think state wants you to provide this to them because they want to do some analysis. Maybe Tanya can uh, uh, you know shed some light on this. This is just an, not an exercise in vain. You know, we mm -hmm. do all of these because there is some reason for it and. Uh, MDP is doing analysis. I right. do not know if their analysis is good for us or if we can we, ha we have some way to tap into this information to uh -huh. use it for ourselves. I'm not uh, familiar with the, the type of analysis that MDP does subsequent to us uh, submitting these annual reports. Again, if the, the team presenting has some any additional information, but we can certainly have a conversation with them about that. Yeah, I think it would be nice to see that, um, what is the analysis and how they use it mm -hmm. and if that has any kind of impact for us. My experience with MDP is they essentially give everybody a scorecard. They say, you're first, you're last, you're within the top 10% of people within, in PFAs. That is the only type of analysis they give. They, they aren't directive. And essentially, this all means we're accomplishing our general plan, which uh, essentially we had a PFA before the state had a PFA and, and said we want to put our, our, uh, our eggs in, in a down, more down county corridor basket than, than develop outside the area. So the, it's sort of a report card kind of thing. If it were mm -hmm. off base, we, we would see it and say, you know, we really should redo the Fairland plan because it's yeah. too low density. Yeah. I, you know, we would say something that, that if we needed a major change, remember, this is the enormous change of direction if it went forward. Uh, but we do master plans all the time. If this led us to an idea that we're doing something or should do something differently, we would take action on it. The good thing <coughs> is that it gives us a report card, okay? It's what? We get a report card. If right. we have a report card comparing with the other counties and see where we're standing, we could look at those other counties to see why how they are having a higher report cards or what it is or somehow uh, I, I was just wondering mm -hmm. that rather than just being an exercise of pushing the number, we take advantage of the report card and see that what those things means for us and how can we get better. That's, that's it. If I can just add, just for the board's knowledge, uh, MDP reviews our, our draft master plans they, and provide comments. They, they were very plugged in as we worked on Thrive Montgomery 2050, um, as well as uh, you know several of our more recent um, master plans that are going through the board process now. And so we, we already have an idea of you know, whether or not they have any feedback with regards to the, to the direction of those plans. And again, it's, my observation is that they're not directive. It's more, <coughs> excuse me, they want to make sure that, we, that our master plans are um, 
you know, meet the state's requirements in terms of what's included in comprehensive plans and also helps to implement the, uh, the 12 visions, planning visions for the state. Um, and that's pretty much the perspective I think that they're looking for, uh, but they always appreciate the opportunity to be plugged in, you know, as we're developing our master plans. Mr. Bartlett. So I was looking through the report, and last night I kept looking for the definition of PFA in, in the uh, report. <laughs> and so, um, and I even went so far as to do control F, find, and typed in PFA, and the only thing that came up was PFA. Okay, so it would be helpful for good me. Good suggestion. I'll, exactly I'll make sure to PFA. add that to the report. So what is a PFA? Thanks. It's just a priority funding area that the state uses to allocate their resources. It's, it's something that I think, and I'm sure Jeff would know more than me, but it was something that became formal in 1997, I believe. Yes. And informal before that in the, in the early 90s. But it, it was a smart growth initiative. Um, and just to make sure that the, the funds that they're allocating are being spent wisely. Thank you. And to some extent, it's a measure of zoning density as well. Yeah. You know, it, it's where you have your intense development. Uh, and, and Mr. McCurgy, I, I appreciated working with you for forever, and I'll, I'll, I'll miss your briefings in the future. <laughs> uh, Thanks. Anything else? No? Uh, can I have a motion to approve the report to send on? Yeah. Move that we approve the report and send it to the NDP. A second. With, with the amendments of putting in PFAs. It's on the top. Actually, it's on the top of page one above table one. I probably, maybe I'm the only one that didn't know. I don't, I don't want to... Uh, I don't, I don't want to uh, uh, criticize my, my fellow commissioners. It's on the top of page one on table one. Oh, okay. Priority funding area. Well, I Googled it. I should tell. <laughs> I, I admit that I, I said, okay, but it's PFA, and I tried to Google it. But I'm always, that's my handicap. I don't understand uh, yeah, acronyms. I have to, and I, I cannot retain it. I forget. I keep forgetting, yeah. Uh, so we have a... Um, a motion on the floor. Any fur the only further discussion I have is that my problem with acronym is I can't spell. But that, that's a whole other thing. Uh, uh, we have a motion on the floor. No further discussion. All those in favor say aye. 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 All right. Five nothing. Thank you very much. Good morning. It's May 25th, 2023, Planning Board session. We're on item eight, uh, Fairland Briggs Cheney Master Plan Work Session number two. This may be our last work session. We'll see. Uh, we will try to get finished with this plan uh, before June 8th. Uh, and with that, I'll turn it over to staff. Thank you, Chair, members of the Commission. Uh, my name is Clark Larson with the Up County Planning Division, and I'm sitting here with a portion of my planning team, which you'll hear from a little bit later. Um, as you said, this is our second work session to talk through potential changes to the draft plan. Uh, we're going to primarily go through testimony that we received, that you received as well, and some of our reactions um, to that testimony, and we'll ask for your direction on what to do about it. Um, so, as you know, what's come before, uh, we released the public hearing draft for a comment on March 30th. That was following your review and approval to release that plan. Uh, 
public hearing was held on May 4th. As part during that public record time, we were receiving written and oral comments, um, oral at that public hearing. Um, we also held a series of driving tours with you and separate occasions. And on the screen is the, the schedule for that. Um, and so that was our chance to give you an uh, on-the-ground look at the area and think about uh, areas of the plan um, that you might want to think about and discuss at these work sessions. Um, we held a work session last week, May 18th, uh, primarily on um, topics that we're not covering today. So everything other than land use and transportation, essentially, uh, was covered last time. And today is a second work session where we're going to focus on those topics I just named. And um, subject to your comfort level, we may not need a June 1st work session that's scheduled. Uh, we'll just see where we end up. So our upcoming schedule, as I mentioned, um, we will be asking you to consider approving the planning board draft at the end of this meeting. Um, we'll then be able to incorporate revisions to the plan per your direction. And um, with the chair's review, finally uh, deciding to transmit the plan to the county council, uh, hopefully before June 8th, which I believe is your last day in, in the office. It's my bet. Last day in the seat, I'm technically on till June 24th. I understand. I'm sorry, June 14th. Okay, yes. So we're working within that somewhat compressed time frame, but I think we can get this done. Um, and then after that will be a series of meetings and public hearings and review of the same plan that you transmit by the county council. So today we'll be focusing on land use and design section, a testimony we received on that chapter, as well as transportation. Um, we're going to bring back a little bit on the community health and culture chapter, some testimony we received, um, late-breaking testimony last Friday, um, and then a few issues on the environment section. Um, you're also welcome to interject any comments you'd like on any of these topics, uh, but we're going to try to get through our testimony as well. So feel free to let us know if you want us to pause at any point. So the land use and design chapter can be found on pages 34 through 39 of the draft plan. And I'll get right into uh, summarizing the testimony that we received, primarily that we thought warranted discussion. There's a number of supportive comments, um, um, testimony that we didn't think needed discussion, but is provided in your attachment in our summary matrix of course, in the original form uh, in the written testimony attachments. I also wanted to mention you probably saw in the agenda packet that we provided a list of direction that you provided last work session, last week. So that was our attempt to capture all of those comments and revisions that we will be making to the plan from our discussion last time. <clears throat> so one item of testimony commented that there's several activity centers called out in the master plan that may not be consistent with those defined in Thrive 2050. Um, we disagree with this comment. You can see actually the activity centers shown on the image on the right in the blue stars. Um, we believe that there are a range of activity centers in this master plan that are consistent with the range identified in Thrive. Thrive 2050 does not define them as exclusive, so there's an opportunity to add and subtract or expand them uh, based on the direction that Thrive provides. Essentially, they are activity centers commensurate with the growth areas that are identified in Thrive 2050. Um, and so we, we don't believe there's any change necessary to the plan in, in response to this testimony, but um, we want to know how you think about it. 
Personally, I thought it was direct on, consistent with five. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have any problems that way. Any, I see heads okay, okay with that. Good to hear. Um, a couple more items of testimony, getting a little more into specifics. Um, a comment opposing the elimination of park and ride lots. Um, we don't believe that the plan does propose to eliminate park and ride lots. There's conversations about transitioning um, bus rapid transit park and ride lots into more active spaces that would certainly provide parking spaces for transit use, but could be um, infilled with other buildings and uses as well, become more of a community amenity. So um, we disagree with a change based on this comment because we don't think that park and ride lots are being recommended to be eliminated in the plan. So in our tour, um, we went through the parking lot that had the, I think the East County Economic Development Building and the East County Rec Center. Right, there's a regional services center and yeah. a recreation center, yes. Okay. Briggs Cheney Park and Ride and Lot. And then during our, our tour, that was a park and ride lot in that in that mm -hmm. area, right? Today it is, yes. Right, and so I asked, you know, if you put new buildings there, what's going to happen to this lot? And then I think it's a free park and ride lot now. And if you construct a a building there, I think that the spaces are going to be diminished and. Are the park and ride spaces still going to be free for the people who choose to park and ride there? And my concern, and um, this is a personal reference, is in downtown Rockville, um, where there was ample parking for the courthouse and access to the governmental services there, mm -hmm. they built all these new big buildings. And so now, uh, there's a parking issue there um, with regards to people coming in and out to utilize the the services um, that are required of the citizens. And so I'm concerned that if you do build something on that lot that currently is, that access will be limited and that park and ride is, in, is a good idea and it encourages people to share in transportation. And then if you limit or restrict or eliminate parking spaces, then you it's counter it's counterproductive. It doesn't meet the goals and aims of park and ride. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and most of the people that park and ride there are either coming to downtown Silver Spring, D.C., and it's an advantageous spot. Um, and so, I would be concerned about that. And I could see how the community. Um, could see it as being an elimination of park mm -hmm. and ride. Yeah, I'll jump in really quickly. Uh, Patrick Butler, uh, of County Division Chief. So um, this is a county-owned property, uh, and it's one of the properties that was identified uh, as highly desirable for affordable housing. Um, so, so any future interaction with the county, uh, specifically DGS, would take the parking into consideration. Uh, similarly, uh, Burtonsville, there's an affordable housing project that's moving forward at another uh, transit station. Um, and there's existing surface parking, which will be converted to uh, affordable housing and parking structure. And they wanna build the parking structure first so that we don't displace the parking that, that is allowed at the transit center. So I, I'm gonna get ahead a little bit of DGS, but I imagine they're gonna do something similar here. They, they certainly don't wanna discourage the parking being allowed 
uh, at the transit station. So I would suspect they would do, again, something similar here that they're doing in Burtonsville. Why not add a statement addressing this concern and exactly what you said is, is that uh, 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 parking should be a consideration as, as uh, redevelopment occurs? Mm -hmm. Non-residential parking, no, so commuter right. yeah, commuter right. parking. So when you say, "Oh, there's going to be, you know, low-income housing," right. that's good. But then the commuter parking may be eliminated, and the people who are residing in the residences are going to probably occupy those spaces. I think just based off of uh, sorry, Tanya Stern, acting planning director. For the record, based off of what Patrick shared, I think DGS's uh, intent, from what I understand, is not to eliminate the park and ride uh, parking, but to figure out how to incorporate that as part of a future development um, for, mm -hmm. that, for that site. So I think we can look at making sure there's some statement just to make sure that that's clear yeah. in the plan. The plan encourages yes. exactly what you just said. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I could point you to a page in the plan that actually does speak to that exact thing. Because we did hear that comment during testimony, actually earlier meetings as well with DGS. So page 88 in this activity center that uh, is regarding this area. Um, there's a whole list of um, discussion about how potential new construction could happen there. Mm -hmm. And then it goes on to say, and any replacement public parking facility is sized to meet current and future bus ridership demands. You can just so link. it's not speaking to cost. We don't know necessarily what that would be. Um, but <clears throat> it would be commensurate with the demand. <clears throat> Because I know that that parking lot is used by a number of different users, mm -hmm. as you said, regional mm -hmm. services, recreation center. It's not entirely all dedicated to park and ride parking. Mm -hmm. So we oh, tried to address it that way, but yeah. we're happy to yeah. Um, yeah. incorporate any other changes you want to make. I just want to mention for the record that we're also not saying that a better use of that location is affordable housing. Like, that's the idea, right? Like, that's a better use of that space. That's better for more people. The affordable housing, we don't have that in this plan right there, which I think we could if we want to go, you know, footnoting everything to death. I say we link to what's in the plan where it talks about not replacing the parking and, and move on with that. Like that, a higher, better use for that space is the affordable housing anyway. And it's not going to take the parking. So. And again, I think that's, that's reflected in the current text too. Yeah, we do reference the potential for affordable housing, not making a statement about what's better or worse, but we're not making that judgment call, I guess. No, I, I, I withdraw what I said. I think it's, you've adequately addressed it. And okay. it was missed by the person commenting. And Mr. Bartley. <laughs> okay, anybody else? Oh. And I would just, um, to clarify for the record, that there was mention of a tour, and we just want to be clear um, that those tours happened um, on different dates for different board members. All five board members were not in attendance at the times for those tours. Um, that correct, Patrick, or? That's right. Uh, yes, uh, correct. I glossed over yeah. that schedule, but yeah, there was three they different, took care three different, to three different tours. Slide. Can you yes. go back to the slide that shows us <laughs> Yeah, three, three different tours. Uh, <laughs> yes. Only, only one uh, had, had two members, um, and then uh, Commissioner Pinheiro is not feeling well, so he, he did not attend the last. Glad you're feeling better. <laughs> Good to see you. <laughs> okay, proceeding on. All right, the second item on this slide is testimony pertaining to um, opposition to a recommendation to discourage new drive-throughs. Um, we disagree with this, um, largely because we put this recommendation in there, but also because we think that new drive-throughs are not consistent with a less auto-dependent future for this area. 
Um, it wouldn't preclude those that exist from continuing, um, but that we don't want to see their proliferation. So the plan speaks to that as it would affect uh, new development within this plan area. No comment. Okay. We're okay. Uh, there was testimony um, opposing the recommendation to discourage vehicle or equipment sales, storage, rental, and service uses to be established outside of the auto sales park, beyond this area, in other properties within the plan area. Um, you know, the reason for this recommendation is to uh, support the concentration of that um, center of activity for auto sales and service, um, but we don't necessarily want to see those uses proliferate and expand as well as drive-throughs um, in other areas. So it's sort of more of a concentration factor to support that auto sales park in, in part. Um, but we have a statement here in the plan to discourage its expansion in other areas. I'm okay with your response. I don't see any other comments. Uh, next is testimony requesting a change to the plan's recommended residential zoning density for the properties at 13100 and 13101 Columbia Pike. Uh, these are currently occupied by the Verizon Maryland LLC company. Um, they're requesting an increase in the residential density from uh, an FAR or floor area ratio value of 0.5, which is now recommended in the plan, to a 1.5. So increasing the ability to um, add more housing units should they redevelop in the future. Uh, we're in support of this. It's consistent with um, the focus of more residential living and um, mixed-use development in this area of the county along US-29. Um, I would just say that the reason it was so low in our minds was because there's such large property areas. We thought we were already providing enough units, but um, apparently the property owner is wanting more flexibility. So we're in support of that. And what's the total FAR on the pro property? Is uh, they're recommending a 1.5. Oh, total FAR yeah. is 2.0. 2.0. So, yeah, so you would have, if you fully so, maxed out 1.5 residential, you would have the remaining 0.5 FAR of floor area to develop as commercial or other uses. And would the plan require some mixed use uh, if they had a major residential development? I don't know that we are requiring mixed use development in any of these properties. Maybe I can be corrected if that's right, if that's wrong. Um, we're certainly permitting and encouraging by sort of leaving right. remaining potential FAR for one use or another. Right. If but you I'm, want to max out, you have to mix, yeah. mix use. But, uh, mm -hmm. but the plan is okay if, if they uh, – what's the size of this property? Oh, these are each, um, I believe, about – I'm going to misspoke, misspeak. Thank you. About 35 acres are representative here for All Verizon. Very right. much. I, I, I can't do the math uh, because 35 acres of uh, 60 units per acre is a lot of dwelling So units. we calculated about 800 units if it was 0.5, and if as a, at a 1.5 FAR for residential, it would be about 2,400 units per property. So it would be a substantial development. I can't imagine it would be limited to residential development at that point. I think there would have to be some amenities um, provided. If nothing else, um, open space, parkland areas. Go ahead. 
I'd like to acknowledge the presence of the Verizon representative for being here today. Thank you for being here today, and they're essential to this master plan. So um, from my understanding um, in future planning, the rezoning is involving the two Verizon properties. Is, is that what's shadowed on that's, here? That's what's before us at this second. There's a okay. lot more rezoning than this. Yeah. Well, it, I know, but I'm talking about this slide yeah, in particular. Right. Yeah, it's the Verizon property. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think it's, it's exciting to want to have um, mixed-use development with a significant housing component, especially with a um, corporate commercial property. I think it's, it's, it's an exciting opportunity um, for um, the area. And it's, um, you know, what I could envision they could probably do with it is very intriguing. Thanks. Yeah, we share that excitement. But just a second, I'll give it over to Molly. I just wanted to give the caveat that we've heard um, time and time again from Verizon, they have no plans to redevelop or move. Mm -hmm. This is a potential option for the future in oh, for 5, sure. 10, 15, 20, who knows how many years that they reconfigure their site or relocate to a different location. This allows redevelopment. They're currently zoned as employment office, yeah. so they would be limited to just that use. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify the, the mixed use and the table that we're referencing on page 78. I know it's on there, but um, we're, we're mainly talking about the site right now that's zone EOF. And so that's 8B and 9. Mm -hmm. And then I just also wanted to kind of point you to the conceptual plan, which is subject to change. This is just an idea that we're proposing if you wanted a better idea of what we're like the placement of the housing and, and its proximity to existing homes. Um, it's on page 75. And Chair, I'll go back to your original question. We've encouraged, we've supported, we're recommending a zone that encourages if you utilize the full density that there would be a mix of uses. We have not specifically or explicitly okay. required uh, a mix of uses for this redevelopment of this site. Just so we consider it here, so when you get that question down the line, uh, you know, I, I freely admit that uh, the, the market for this type of housing here and, and structured parking for residential in this area of the county will be a little bit beyond my retirement. So it'll be others to, to deal with the development that will come. But you, it's important that we know right now that, that if the master plan dictates mixed use or not, and it doesn't, it encourages. So I'm, I'm cool. I, I, I want to ask a question. Maybe I about need some. About my retirement? About, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, because that's one of my concerns for, for this master plan, that how are we going to encourage economic development? You know, I was reading the history about this area, that they had those moratoriums, mm -hmm. and that area <coughs> is behind in economic development. So not being as expert as you are, uh, I'm thinking that the way you have put it, that you don't specifically ask for mixed use, should be good. Because Permissive. If, Permissive. Yeah, because it allows, uh, if we want to do economic development, hopefully we don't want Verizon go anywhere else. We want Verizon. <laughs> if it was anywhere else, stay around there, because we want to make it more economically viable 
for people to give them more tax base and make it uh, live and alive and bring more businesses back there. So we have to provide as much as flexibility possible, not to specify just mixed use or whatever that allows us to bring businesses there and bring that side of the county to be coming along with the rest of the county. I, I hear nothing but violent support for your recommendation so far. Yes, that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> I don't even have to say anything yet. No, we're good. Uh, anybody else? Commissioner Bartley, your mic is still on if you wanted to say anything more. No, um, just, just to, to reiterate the, um, the genius of the, um, the rezoning to include mixed-use development um, in this type of opportunity um, most corporations wouldn't squander because they have an opportunity to turn an asset that is not necessarily performing into a performing asset. And so the mixed-use development is, is very smart. Thanks. And, and the only thing I'll say is, is that in my history, I've known this site more as the CMP telephone site as I have for Verizon, but that's just me. Uh, I, I see nothing but support for your recommendation, so let's proceed. Great, thank you. And before I move on, I just wanted to quickly point out, you might see red text here in the bottom. We're calling this out on slides where there's either track changes of quoted text that we propose to add or something to be changed. So please look out for that as uh, the revisions that we'll be suggesting in our response. Um, another related zoning recommendation. Um, several comments you probably saw coming in th during the public record in opposition to the recommended rezoning of a property at 2131 East Randolph Road. It's currently zoned R200 um, and the plan recommends a zone to commercial residential town with a 1.0 total FAR, uh, a quarter FAR for commercial uses, 1.0 for residential and a maximum height limit of 75 feet. Um, we support the plan's recommendation, so disagree with the testimony not to rezone it that way. We think it's part of this um, activity center. It could be an integral piece of that corner um, as it's redeveloped. And um, I also wanted to point out that this same zone was previously approved by the zoning board through a local map amendment, but didn't make its way all the way through the process. It was held up at the hearing examiner's um, stage. Um, I don't know all the exact reasons, but the applicant chose to wait for the plan. Uh, it was essentially a rezoning, a single rezoning, and with friction in the process, they chose to wait for the plan's consideration of that zone. And we found that that zoning change was consistent with the direction that the plan was going. So. And consistent with the prior board recommendation. That's right. Mm -hmm. Commissioner. Is that for both the 11C and the 13 parcels, or just was the was the was the criticism for both the thirteen? The testimony we received focused primarily uh, solely on the on the thirteen thirteen site. Okay, yeah, yeah. just that little upside down L. Okay. I just wanted to confirm that. Yeah, it's no, a vacant property owned by the Seventh Day Adventist um, General Conference, and they were seeking development there, piece, yeah. but they need the different zone to accomplish that. Right. It's a significant. Uh, Increase in zoning, but supported by the ideas of the of your sector plan. So seems okay. Anybody else? 
Seeing no other objections, uh, staff uh, recommendation would go forward. All right, there was testimony um, requesting that the plan um, clarify the types of projects in the auto sales park that would be subject to near-term and long-term changes. And so we're in agreement with that need to clarify. And so we've proposed in very small text here on the screen um, changes to the sort of lead-in statements for short-term improvements that have a bunch of sub-recommendations, as well as the lead-in statement for long-term vision recommendations um, that would speak to the scale and type of development that might come into play or be considered for those uh, improvements on the, the A, B, C, D letters that are underneath those numbers. Um, and so we're supporting the, rec the testimony here with these proposed changes. Uh, and you didn't want to further define what a mark minor development is as either a percentage of the existing FAR or, or a No, I, I think it's, amount, it's dangerous or? when you get into percentages and actual numbers. You know, it, it really can come down to the plan review process. I am happy to leave problems to others, but uh, <laughs> I, you know, I'm just trying to get some definition for you. If, if you're content with minor and the board is content with minor, yes, so yes. be it. I, these are very good routines that I, I think were, is a, a, a good improvement over, yeah. uh, over the original recommendation where it was confused on whether everything mm -hmm. that we're asking for an optional method applied to a minor addition because those, those criteria would apply due to the existing FAR on the site. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it's over 0.5 FAR so that you're in that, that box. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think everybody's okay. Oh. I do have a comment. So when we were circling through the auto park, um, I wasn't clear about where the three acre contiguous public open space would be in that, that particular right. park. And so I didn't press you on it for the yeah. sake of the tour, but. We're not calling out a specific location because we don't know what property or properties would be consolidated and developed in a major or a significant development project that would warrant such a park. Um, it's really, um, I think what we're trying to clarify here and what the intent is, is that it would be a multi-property major development, maybe a whole new town center or a large institutional use that would come into play um, as a transition from some of the auto sales and service businesses to something else that would have to consider that three-acre park. And the contiguous nature is to make it not split up in a bunch of small areas, but have it be a cohesive um, large area that's usable. And again, Maline Jackson, for the record. Um, the concept plan is on page 85, if you'd like to reference what we, an idea that we had, again, subject to change concept for an option one and an option two. But does, does that include the restoration of that stream you pointed out? Um, well, it could. Yes, the stream could be um, expanded, highlighted, even with development on that site as well. It doesn't necessarily need a large park to be put into place to support that waterway or um, drainage area leading into a stream area. Um, so we, we thought that was one potential place because of that historic um, stream alignment that probably is, is either running water 
at surface during rain or underground all the time. Um, we think it could connect into more natural areas down south of the auto sales park. Um, but that's not a foregone conclusion. We don't know exactly where that would happen. But the, the large three-acre park would be if many properties are being redeveloped and redesigned at that point. Yeah, I, yeah, I read this as anticipating either um, a resubdivision of many parcels at one time or leaving it open, leaving space on an adjoining property that could be added to it uh, over time. Because, I mean, we're talking about lots of time here for this to really develop. So yeah. I thought yeah. it provided for either of those It could be incremental, yes. Um, there certainly is a basic public open space requirement as part of any development. Um, so if you start putting them in close proximity to each other, they can form a cohesive whole. Um, if it's split up by roads and driveways, that makes it harder. So this would be you know, something that you would really have a good chunk of, of land to I be know, able to but, accomplish. But again, um, I have the same. How are you going to enforce the three acre? Okay? Because this three acre is for the whole site. Okay? And you have pieces that are going to be developed individually. And you don't know what is the design or the forming of the development in the other ones. And you may decide in the first piece that we're going to make sure, we think that the other one is going to have a piece on this side, so we're going to tell them to put maybe one acre or a half acre on this side, that when the other one comes, they match it. It's going to be very difficult. Uh, I just don't see how, if they don't come together close by, that you at least have some kind of concept. Uh, we have gone through this with the parks, and it's when the developer comes, one comes now and another one five years, another one another ten years, the whole thing would be different, and it's very hard to enforce that you put half an acre and you put one acre and you have to put it on this location. Mm -hmm. no, yeah, I'll, just, I'll jump in again. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I'm going to jump in again, Clark. Um, right, so I think, I think with the first draft that we presented to you, I think that problem exists. I think with the changes in the, this issue being brought up, has made this recommendation more clear in that, yes, if there is a large, we, we don't know what's gonna happen next. Yeah. If there is, if, if all the properties come in together or most of the properties come in together, then the three acre recommendation, we can work that out and on how all of that lays out, including this, this uh, recommended open space. If they come in individually uh, at a time, um, per the public open space requirements, other requirements, again, the, the language added here gives us more flexibility and that, that while the larger goal is that three acres, we're clearly going to do this property by property or properties by properties, depending on, on what we get. So I think we have the flexibility still with the overarching goal that we're going to have yeah. this as contiguous as possible. But I think with the changes, we have much more flexibility. So do you in, in think that flexible? Because the way I read the sentence right now, because we discussed this last time, a minimum of three-acre contiguous public open space that functions as a cohesive park-like setting, okay? To me, it's very clear that you want three-acre. What happens? How do you enforce it, and how do you get it? I just see statement there, the possibility of enforcing it and bringing it, it's quite difficult. That's the only thing I say. And if we bond ourselves to this three-acre, we're going to make it not only difficult for us, also for the future development that they're coming there, that we want them to come. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so. I, think, I think we're reading all of these together. Not, not, if you pick one statement out and just stick to that, that one sentence, then it seems like it's three acres no matter what. But when you yeah. read that entire section there, that, that's the difference uh, for, I think, Okay, uh, if you tell me that's what it is, I buy. Yeah, so, I can point well, you to the, the <laughs> second section red lines, which really define what that three-acre park would be subject to. So the realize the plan's long-term vision for compact mixed-use development. We're proposing a clarification of the types of projects that would come into play with all these sub-recommendations. This three-acre contiguous public open space is a sub-recommendation of that long-term approach. So really, we're trying to set up at the 4B42 recommendation all those underlying recommendations, um, how they would be determined. If you tell me that's flexible, yeah. I buy it. I, and I, I agree I, with you. It's not well, going to necessarily happen. I don't get it, but if you tell me it is, I, got, I understand. Okay. How, how about adding a sentence or two that says if, if uh, uh, a development proposal is insufficiently large to accommodate a three-acre continuous proposal, uh, uh, the project would include open space on its boundaries so that it can be continued on other parcels. You do that. You said if it's not sufficiently. If, to, if to it were not thing, sufficiently large do to do three piece. acres on, on the single development, then the open space should be located in a manner that it could be continued on other properties. Yeah, I like that much better. That makes sense to me. Yeah. I'm just that trying works. to say what you told me. <laughs> sure. That would work. I mean, honestly, I don't think this would really start happening from incremental single site redevelopment or revitalization. This would be something that would happen as part of maybe half of the auto sales park, the property owners decide they want to go a different direction or recalibrate how their auto sales businesses are designed. Maybe they have their sales floor over here, but a whole different set of land uses and development in a different part. That would be the sufficient size to accomplish that potentially. So maybe you want to say that, that it has to be a sufficient size in the development. Sure. Maybe, that, maybe that is the answer. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. You know, I want parts, okay. but at the same time, I don't want to stop development. Add, add a sentence or two that describes your thought. <laughs> Just one sentence? I had well, I said, long whatever. I said you could get two. Okay. <laughs> uh, remember, it's a dollar a word. Um, and remember, none of us know the future anyhow. So we're, we're trying to anticipate what right. we're going to get. Anticipating the future. Okay. All right. Would that change? Okay. Um, another testimony still at the auto sales park. Um, there's a request. Uh, not to require the elimination of drive access limitations. So the recommendation is to uh, eliminate the de denial of access um, easements that are in place on Briggs-Cheney Road. This essentially doesn't allow driveways or access points from Briggs-Cheney Road today. Um, the reason why we're recommending those be considered for elimination is to allow, through redevelopment, potential access points with either access into a parking garage or the front end of a building. It could be for loading, customers, anything like that. So just as properties come in to be redeveloped, considering they could remove that denial of access overlay. Yeah. Um, as well, there's concern with the testimony not to trigger underground utility requirements. Um, we are 
recommending undergrounding of utilities as a general recommendation in the plan, um, but we don't want to necessarily get into the extent to which that happens. Uh, that's really left up to the development re review process in our minds. No disagreement? No, the only thing is that we had this, if there is a small development, it, that's, it's not a big size that they come and they, I guess that if they have this uh, flexibility during uh, the development review process, that they uh, work out the utility relocation or make it underground. Because a small business may not be able to financially feasible mm -hmm. to <coughs> underground because it's not just in front of them that they have to underground. It has to be much further out. Right. So maybe there should be a fund or something that they uh, you know, distribute to that when the other businesses come, they could do it together. So something like that should be considered uh, in cases a smaller development coming. That would certainly be possible. I don't know that we want to recommend establishing a fund or a, you know, yeah. a group effort like that. That's yeah, maybe whatever a, a comes. Different yeah. exercise, but we do encourage underground utility utility work while also allowing flexibility in the yeah. process, so. All right, there's a request in the testimony to, uh, the, well, a concern that the rezoning recommendations will change um, the ability for different uses to exist or be added or be renovated. Um, in our review of the CR, CR, and IGR, which is in place today, general retail, to our recommendation recommended CR and IM zones, we didn't find any significant changes in the allowable uses that would occur. Um, so we don't believe there's a need to um, keep anything, any of these properties as a general retail zone. We're not limiting any auto sales or service businesses. There might be some changes from a, a limited to a conditional in some cases. Um, I have the whole list here on my notes in front of me, but we didn't find there was a significant change in the types of vehicle sales and service businesses from GR to CR. And even if there were a, 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 any difference, it would be grandfather. As yeah, they would be allowed years. to continue as they're in right. place. Um, but I think there was concern from the testimony that even if they were to be adding new businesses, would there be an inhibition on some of those uses oh, right. by this change? Right, yeah, they're cool. Uh, seeing no, no problems with the staff <coughs> response. All right, in a similar vein, um, we are recommending in the plan to rezone a portion of a county property, start in black here, so south of the auto sales park. Currently, it's general retail. It's splitting that property between general retail and R60. We're proposing to rezone it to R60 to make it a cohesive zone on the property. It's essentially a stormwater pond down the hill from the auto sales park. There was concern and testimony that this might impose new compatibility requirements. Um, but our, in our review of the zoning ordinance, we didn't find that to be the case uh, from the R60 to the IM zone between yeah, those. A lot of the compatibility deals with residential use, not residential zone. So, yes, uh, and know, certainly so not as much compatibility issues for the IM properties. Um, there will likely be no homes built on downhill in the stormwater right, pond. Right. So. right, that in the stormwater pond. So is, uh, on this diagram, are 19G and 19H the stormwater ponds or? Yes. 
Yeah, that's one property owned by Montgomery County, but there is a stormwater facility, a, a wet pond that stores water continuously uh, from the runoff from properties to the north. Um, it also is probably mitigating stormwater from the uh, intercounty connector mm -hmm. highway that's just to the south of it. And then that water flows into drainage that eventually makes its way into Paint Branch Stream. But that's from 19G and 19H, correct? Yes. Okay, I'm reading my yes. tiny. I can see it from Route 200. When <laughs> yes, that's correct. Right. Yeah. We, we can see it, Clark. Right. Good, good. Good. That's better. That's right. You okay? I was just asking because I remember there was a community comment with regards to a resident that owned some property that seemed to abut one of these properties here near Route 200 and Auto Park, and I'm not sure if it is in close proximity to this or to the east of it. But uh, I remember um, in a presentation there was <coughs> a community member that owned property somewhere in and around here. You, are you referring to Greencastle Road intersection? No, I thought it was off 29? of. I thought it was off of um, Route 200 okay. prior to the auto park. But if I'm mistaken, I'm mistaken. But we were, uh, did so, receive testimony from the Calverton Citizens Association, which is a neighborhood to the south, but not an individual property owner. Okay. Mm -hmm. Commissioner, why was it rezoned? To, I mean, it, it seems unlikely you would ever actually get housing, obviously, on top <laughs> yeah. of a stormwater. Why R60? Is it just default? It's sort of a way to preserve the land okay. as open space. We think there's a potential. At some other diagrams show a potential for a trail pathway okay. through there. Okay. Um, but we see this, it's really undevelopable, as you yeah. say, there's no access to it. Yeah. So we see it as either stormwater or some other sort of open space mm -hmm. between uh, industrial mm -hmm. retail businesses and a highway. And there might be some use for it, for getting that land together there around the auto park area. Yeah, maybe in 100 years you yeah. can have something built there, but not in the horizon of our plan. And what's on the remainder of the R60 property that isn't stormwater? Um, it is entirely the county property that functions as a stormwater oh, the whole pond. There's property, some forest. The whole, yeah, right, there's forest so, stands and open oh, space. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, it's split zone today. We seek to unify it. Got under it. A single zone. Okay. Uh, I see no problems with your recommendation. Thank you. Um, testimony in concerning that uh, structured parking um, as a recommendation as a short-term improvement at the auto sales park uh, is not viable due to current construction costs and market conditions. Um, we feel that while that might be the case today, we disagree with changing the recommendation. We think there's a potential for more dense parking designs. We see it in other parts of the county. Um, that might be with different um, property value situations, but we think there's a potential for it here. So we want to allow that to happen in sometime in the future um, and not um, avoid it because of current market conditions. I mean, even in the old world zoning, if you were above uh, a one FAR, you were into structured parking. So your zoning sort of commands structured parking in the long-term future. Right, there's very low that FAR it, that, built today there. That is the nature of the density and having a car-oriented area. See no problems? All right. 
Well, that concludes our land use and design section. We want to move into the transportation section. Uh, testimony we received on that. Um, and these next two slides are very similar. They are regarding uh, a potential interchange at US 29 and Industrial Parkway, Tech yeah. Road. Um, this first item of testimony requests revising the plan's uh, recommendation against building interchanges to conduct a more detailed traffic study. I think there's concern that there would be um, impacts to White Oak or developments within that area. I'll just go quickly to this next. Yeah, did it go next? Okay. Uh, a related item of testimony um, concerned that recommending against an interchange at Tech Road in US 29 would change the situation of uh, what is understood as potential joint interchange between Tech Road and Industrial Parkway, the sort of one side access on one road, another side access on another, and that there might be unintended consequences to property um, impacts. You know, we are taking a whole different approach to interchanges in this plan than in previous planning efforts, especially the 1997 plan, um, essentially recommending that there be no new interchanges on US 29. It's not the future that we envisioned for this highway, um, but are allowing for the industrial parkway interchange that's approved in the White Oak Science Gateway Master Plan to be allowed, considered, should it prove necessary. Um, so we're sort of putting the onus on that interchange on what's already adopted in the White Oak Science Gateway Master Plan and those interchanges, intersections that exist in the Fairland and Briggs-Cheney Master Plan, moving away from that as the approach for transportation, the transportation system at large. You know, there's a number of different ways to move around. One is by car, bus, biking, walking. So we don't think the interchanges are necessarily compatible with that uh, future for multimodal safe travel. So we just wanted to bring this to your attention and ask for your input. I don't know if there's Could any other. Could you say why is not? Because um, maybe, I don't know, um, there was interchange and you're going to, uh, you know, we're going to bring DRT, we're going to put bikeways and everything. Why having an interchange and just instead of a traffic light or anything else, it's not inconsistent with the modal transportation. I never knew that interchanges are no good. Well, there's certainly different designs for how yeah. interchanges can be made. One is the big clover leaves that take all four corners. Another is more compact yeah. urban styles. Yeah. In any cases, you're raising the road up. Yeah. So you have grading, you have mm -hmm. you know, the, the slope impacts, and that doesn't allow you to bring buildings close to the street. That essentially separates the roads from um, having the ability to cross as, as easily back and forth. So I don't know if, if anyone else can well, provide. You could bring the road up or you could bring it down depending that how you want to develop the areas. You know, bridges could go either over or they could go under. Uh, and uh, depending on the development, um, and it does uh, change some of the uh, plan in regard to you know traffic i agree that it's going to impact because you were thinking about a faster moving traffic and now it's going to be uh, slower traffic uh, i'm just 
you know, curious. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in here too uh, for a moment, uh, Patrick Butler. Uh, again, so so one as part of our existing conditions and and the work that we've done in this community. Uh, Highway 29 interchanges, um, they, they really divide this community in particular. They divide communities in particular. And so this, is, this recommendation is consistent with many of the plans that we brought forward uh, to the board over the last several years now um, across many parts of the county that, that um, our way of measuring traffic and movement has changed. Uh, our switch um, focus from the single occupancy vehicle and how quickly we can move thousands of cars through an intersection has changed. Uh, we're looking, taking a more multimodal approach, putting much heavier en emphasis on traffic and pedestrian mobility, rolling mobility, whether that's bike, wheelchair, et cetera. So, you know, it, it's sort of, it's consistent with what we've been doing across uh, many parts of the county and trying to bridge this east-west divide that exists right now uh, uh, within within this particular plan area. Uh, let, additional let, let's just translate that for the benefit of the person who is making the testimony, and that is that the, the development in White Oak or Viva White Oak or whatever it is um, uh, would not be prohibited because this intersection right. is not in this plan. Is correct. that correct? The, correct, yes. We, okay. we, we are not amending the White Oak Science Gateway Master Plan's recommendation to consolidate these interchanges and place it at uh, 29 in Industrial Parkway, if it's needed. Okay. Thank you. Anything else? No. So, Commissioner Bartlett? So, um, during our tour, the intersection, I believe, of 29 and Tech Road is the intersection where that leads to Chick-fil-A, correct? <laughs> yep. All right. And then just above Tech Road is the 29 interchange with Randolph Road or Cherry Hill Road, correct? So um, I do see the difficulty in having an interchange there because there's one right up the road. But there is a problem there. So the intersection is problematic for pedestrian uh, travel and then there's a bunch of dead space between I don't know what the road that runs adjacent to 29 on the right side is but there's this like gap and there's dead space but there's also a congestion issue there for traffic and there's also a pedestrian issue there and you noted that people that work in that office building on the east side of 29 have a hard time crossing over to go to the shops and stores um, on the west side of Tech Road 29. Does this recommendation eliminate any redevelopment of that area to make it multimodal? Because right now it is multimodal, but it is very difficult for um, pedestrians or bicyclists. I would say that by not recommending an interchange, we're allowing the land uses to remain and Know, come closer to the intersection. I think there's a number of ways maybe our transportation planner can speak to how to make the intersection itself safer for crossing. Well, I'm concerned about, you know, if you eliminate the um, interchanges in, in that area that... Um, the planned. You, you eliminate the come, planned yeah. unbuilt inter interchanges. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm just concerned because it's a... It's a it's, I think it's more advantageous for the community members that live on the east side of 29 there 
and so when the interchange was developed for um, 29 and Randolph Road, less than a quarter of a mile away, that maybe it should have been there. But then again, you can't have duplicative interchanges in such a short um, window. Yeah, I don't know what the spacing requirements on a highway are. Yeah, but, but I mean, it just doesn't make sense. It yeah, probably, just, yeah. I guess like Patrick was saying, we, we just think an interchange being plopped down on an intersection like this has many more consequences than just allowing traffic to move faster as the one of the only I know, benefits. One of the, one of the problems that Chick-fil-A wouldn't like, it would, they would get bypassed. <laughs> like people would just not think about stop and see them or TGI Fridays, Panera Bread, or all those stores there. It would, yeah, keep, you know. keeping the recommendation for the interchange actually impacts the recommendations that we've made to leverage the Tech Road Park and Ride with the uh, BRT station that is, is there. That this, I mean, you'd have to, again, picture an interchange now plopped on top of the recommendations, which, it, it, again, from our modeling, everything, we, everything that we have determined to be just unnecessary. And, and I did want to make one more point I was trying to make earlier before we jumped. Yeah. Uh, when there, if and when there is economic development in this area in terms of public dollars, perhaps like uh, is occurring at, at Burtonsville, we want those public funds to go into transit and these improvements that will really bridge this divide rather than going towards interchanges and more highway facilities like this for, again, the single occupancy vehicle, which is unbelievably costly. And once it goes up, it never comes down. It's even more cost costly to take it down. So we really want the public dollars to truly go into redevelopment of this area, not an interchange. Okay, yeah, you're putting all the bridge engineers out of jobs. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, talking, we're just having you focus on that. Uh, I, 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 just I joking. See a, <laughs> I see agreement with the staff recommendation. Mm -hmm. So please proceed. Thank you. Uh, with that, I'm going to turn it over to another one of my colleagues to get more into the testimony we received on transportation. All right, for the record, uh, Brett Brown, Up County Transportation. Sorry, it's a little loud. Um, <laughs> so not to stretch out the point that we've already made in the last five minutes, this testimony basically kind of follows the same recommendation for the interchange. And getting into the next slide, it's also similar. So this testimony talks about expanding the plan boundary to also include an interchange at Greencastle Road, which the previous 97 plan called for an interchange. Again, staff disagrees. We do not want any other interchanges within the area. If you honestly think about it, interchanges really are a 50-year investment. They are a 50-year barrier. So that's not really something that we want. It kind of flies in the face of the whole plan recommendation for making this area more walkable, more pedestrian-friendly, more bicycle-friendly as well. Final agreement. Uh, Kind of the same deal. This one talks about uh, reducing some of the lanes on US 29 and some of the um, existing um, at great interchanges. This testimony says we should not do that because it would increase in congestion. Obviously, our response is no. Um, that's kind of, counter again, counterintuitive to a lot of the more pedestrian-friendly and more bicycle-scale recommendations that we're lodging in the plan. Um, the next one. Are there any questions? Sorry, I don't want to go too fast. Anybody Commissioner Bartley, I, I thought uh, you're okay. No, we're okay. Okay, all right, let me know oh, if I'm oh. going too fast. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, second, uh, other testimony we got was about a uh, recommendation for roundabouts. Uh, I will say currently there are two roundabouts that are partially within the plan area. So there's one at, um, I believe it's Fairland Road and Brahms Avenue. And then there's a second one 
uh, not even a quarter mile at Fairland, uh, the intersection of Fairland Musgrove and Marlowe Farm Terrace. Um, there, staff, obviously, staff disagrees. There isn't a blatant recommendation for uh, a roundabout within the plan, but rather the plan seeks to at least study the feasibility of impl implementing a roundabout at certain intersections, namely Briggs, Cheney, and Castle Boulevard. Um, any questions before I move on? Awesome. Seeing none. Uh, second testimony uh, was about uh, frontage roads. Uh, as, as you can see on the map, um, there aren't any recommendations for a frontage road. Um, there's actually an existing uh, driveway and a non-existing side path that would run along the site, uh, although staff does support um, adding clarifying language that states that the adherence of any uh, proposed roads would adhere to uh, county spacing, intersection spacing requirements. Uh, this question has come up multiple times, um, and we also do understand some of the confusion within complete streets. Um, applying some of these designations to streets, especially within some of the, the uh, proposed town center areas, it is somewhat confusing. I can understand that. Uh, if you look back, look back at the complete streets document, it does call for you know these gargantuan buildings, especially within the downtown or a town center area. That's not what we're recommending. It's not most it's not really about the land use it's more so about some of the pedestrian recommendations so on certain streets there may be a recommendation for a side path or a shared use path or a protected bike lane or brt that's mostly what we're looking for not really the land use but actually the some of the pedestrian and bicycle recommendations but like i said this is a question that has come up a lot and we do understand how within complete streets it does look like we're you know we're applying this area type to a specific area and it seems like we would be asking for tall buildings, but that's not that's not what we're looking for. It's mostly just about pedestrianizing the area. And you're not even asking for the downtown designation, are you? You're asking for town center designations. Uh, we do we do have that. We have town center, and we also have downtown. Yeah, we're identifying a, this is Clark Larson for the record again, we're identifying a downtown context area um, in the southern part that would be adjacent to the okay. downtown White Oak area too. So we see it as sort of a adjacent um, extension of that White Oak downtown area in order pr to provide continuous, continuous facilities on either side of 29. And sort of within extension. that, you're asking for the, the correct street type. Right. Okay. No one, no other comments here? Uh, let's see here, did I, did I skip one? Okay, sorry. Okay. Uh, so this one talks about limiting uh, the extent of the area designation for Briggs Cheney Town Center to only the CR and CRT zones. So as since most of you were on the tour with us, um, a lot of the density behind uh, Briggs Cheney Marketplace is very misleading. It's somewhat comparable to you know a downtown Bethesda or a downtown Silver Spring. You have a lot of um, older multifamily properties. You have tall apartment buildings. You have single family attached. There is a lot of density again that's very misleading. So. We don't really want to take away that designation, just given the fact that there's a lot of pedestrian activity, some bicycle activity, and then we also have the intensity of uh, some of the BRT and then the Z8 that, that runs along in the area. Uh, any questions? None. 
this testimony was related to establishing uh, a reduced speed limit on Greencastle Road. Um, while staff does agree, based on the um, actual street typology, I believe the current speed limit is 30 miles per hour. Um, Greencastle is an area connector, so the speed technically should be 25. Unfortunately, that's outside the purview of this plan. Um, staff can make the recommendation, but we can't outright, you know, tell MCDOT, hey, this needs to be a certain speed. But we can we can definitely make the recommendation. So we, we do understand this feedback. Okay. Um, second, this testimony is pretty much similar to the one about Greencastle. Again, um, the elimination of some of the Axel Decel lanes uh, leading to Fraylin Rec Park under the jurisdiction of both MCDOT and Montgomery Parks. Again, we can make the re recommendation, but it's ultimately up to the, the two latter agencies to make that decision. I mean, there are park, there are, uh, park areas, uh, the parking areas along right. that that might have XLD cell lanes, if I recall. Yes, yeah, there's a, there's a bike lane that runs north, and then to the right of the bike lane are the XLD cell lanes that lead into the park. So. No other comments? No, we're fine. Um, so this testimony is, pertains to electrical, electric vehicle charging stations, EVs. Um, so uh, one of the questions was about uh, requiring new developments within the area to have a certain uh, requirement for electrical, ve electrical vehicle charging stations. Staff does disagree. Uh, we believe that establishing a, a greater countywide ZTA would probably be more conducive rather than just something that's specific to the Fairland area. Uh, the second part of this testimony is about uh, electrical capacity for charging stations. Again, staff does agree that this is important, but this is well outside the scope of uh, the master plan. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, so now we're moving into the, some of the bikeway recommendations. So this testimony kind of follows a little bit about Green Council Road. Um, that has been a pretty big uh, uh, comment from a lot of different residents within the area. Um, currently, there are bicycle facilities on Greencastle Road, uh, not just uh, within the that we're um, expecting within the plan area, but also within the bicycle master plan. Um, there's also limited right of way, unfortunately. Um, and this commenter was talking about adding protected bike lanes. There are conventional bike lanes, but again, due to the limited right of way, it really wouldn't make a lot of sense. There are existing bike lanes. There's an existing side path, and the plan does have recommendations for extending the side path uh, north past Old 29 and then south uh, past its current terminus by Fairland Rec Park and eventually into uh, Prince George's County. Okay. Um, and this is just, uh, just a clarification question on the recommendation for the inner and outer uh, green loops within the area. So this, uh, this map is actually contained within the parks and open space section. So uh, we, staff will clarify more that uh, Clarify more on this within the transportation section. Uh, so we do understand where some of the confusion is. We'll we'll ha provide some callbacks to the just for some for uh, transparency. The the other cross reference uh, that needs to be made a little bit is the pedestrian bicycle plan that we're taking this afternoon, and there are specific recommendations for BIPA areas right. that that I didn't see referenced in this plan. Uh, why not, or how do we plan to coordinate those two plans that we're sending up at the same time? That's a good question. Uh, we do discuss BIPAs to some extent in the plan. Um, 
as far as prioritizing investment in bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure. We're not recommending a new expand or expanded BIPA in this bicycle. Uh, sorry, can you <laughs> describe this more? He knows it better than I do. Chris Van Ostein with the Up County Planning Team. Uh, uh, there'll be a, a bicycle and pedestrian priority area, um, but we we aren't suggesting any changes necessarily. All right, not expanding them, but uh, a, a lot of the recommendations that we are making are very much in line with prioritizing bike and pedestrian improvements in these areas. Uh, and again, there's a lot of overlap between our, our town center areas and uh, downtown areas, um, which are honestly a little bit more expansive. So throughout these areas, um, we, we have extensive recommendations on having, say, protected intersections, uh, expanded um, uh, bikeways and, and sidewalk infrastructure. Yeah. I'm just worried about the cross geography between the two plans and uh, uh, <clears throat> whether they are in fact consistent. I couldn't tell because the, they didn't exist here and they exist in the other plan. Um, uh, are you going to have a geography of these BIPA areas or are they your town center your or your Urban area. That, that's a good point. I'm not sure. I, maybe we don't have a map included in the in the master plan, but uh, that that can be included uh, if you if you desire it to be. Um, they they do exist outside of the master plan. They are in existence, right. so um, we we are aware of it, and, and that is has been guiding this master plan. Uh, I, I would ways. suggest the recognition so there isn't that cross problem between the two plans. Yeah, we, we can do that. Thank you. It's more of your cross-reference. <laughs> uh, so this one is just more clarification questions. Um, there is a section within um, the bicycle table that we have where um, certain segments were numbered, and it really wasn't uh, certain, you know, if that meant that there was a side path on one side, a regular sidewalk on the other. So this is just a revised table six, so it's actually a little more clear. And then the second big piece of that is uh, breezeway. So the ICC breezeway, we've also included that um, to our map. And you can see that on, on screen. OK. Um, this testimony concerns um, Old 29 and the inclusion of shared use paths and protected bike lanes. Um, similar to comments for Greencastle Road, there is limited right of way. I believe Greencastle and Old 29 have about the same right of way, 80 feet. Um, the master plan already proposes multiple pedestrian and bicycle facilities on Old 29, and that extend well outside the plan boundary. Um, so because of the limited right-of-way on Old 29, it, it does make implementing some facilities rather difficult. Uh, so conventional on-street bike lanes are preferred. Um, and then lastly, the ICC breezeway, which is master planned, is also highlighted within our current master plan. Okay. Um, again, just more clarification. So this just adds a little bit of text from the uh, most recent uh, Silver Spring Downtown and Adjacent Communities Plan, and staff has already added this into our public hearing draft. Uh, so this testimony discusses floating bus stops, which are, although they are a, uh, a best practice, um, this, this uh, testimony talks about having floating bus stops on Greencastle Road, Unfortunately, there is limited bus service on Greencastle. There is a parking ride um, at right at the kind of the corner tip of Fairland Rec Park at Greencastle on Turbridge Drive. 
Um, again, there's limited service. It basically just ends there before it goes back down Ballinger toward Roby Road. Um, again, for any kind of improvements to like the actual buses themselves and the bus stations, we would defer those recommendations to both WMATA and MCDOT. Uh, this testimony concerns uh, having more all-weather BRT stations. Um, staff does disagree, although this is uh, a comment that has that came up a lot. So we did add some language to, to have enhanced um, station design to account for for the weather at uh, existing and proposed BRT stations. No problem. Um, Kind of the same testimony, again, talking about BRT stations and the difference between the BRT stations and the parking ride lots. Um, so staff does agree. So we did add some clarification language to include BRT stops and park and ride facilities uh, in reference to all types of uh, BRT facilities so that when we do talk about it in the plan, it's a little more inclusive. Fine. Uh, so, again, kind of going back to uh, realignments for some of the bus routes, this concerns the Orange Line BRT. Um, staff does disagree in part because, again, uh, lodging any kind of recommendations are kind of outside the purview uh, of our plan. Um, right now, the plan does seek to study some of the workability of uh, a realignment of the Orange Line BRT. Uh, currently, it terminates at Castle Boulevard before it turns back around. Um, so with that studied, possible studied alignment, there would be a connection between the Briggs-Cheney Park and Ride and then Fairland Rec Park, which again, going back to some of the testimony before, um, Greencastle Road really is starving for some kind of transit connectivity, especially with the Z8 basically ending, and there really isn't a connection, you know, really lack of pedestrian and then a lack of transit connections to Fairland Rec Park. Okay. Uh, so again, more clarification. This one is about uh, the Randolph East Randolph Road Cherry Hill BRT. Um, staff does agree that there does need to be a little more clarification on you know how that would actually work and if there are any other alignments that may be a little more conducive. Um, so we there really isn't a clear cut answer. So we will add some clarifying language about okay. some of those segments. Um, so this testimony is about implementing road diets on Briggs-Cheney Road as, and as, uh, in addition to other major arterials within the plan area. Staff wholeheartedly agrees. Again, this goes back to uh, the greater goal of the plan to make the area more pedestrian friendly, more bikeable, and also implementing uh, better transit. You can study the feasibility of many things. This is fine. Um, so this question also stays on US 29, but it also includes uh, clarification language about a BRT station at Briggs Cheney in 29. So there, we don't have a picture, but there's a similar configuration in LA. Uh, I think it's, I believe it's also the orange line where it's in the median of the expressway and there's stairs and everything going up to a, a nearby road. So staff does support allowing, um, adding some, some clarifying language okay. about that. Um, again, this is about BRT and not to really beat a dead horse too much, but uh, while the plan does lodge a lot of robust recommendations about um, transit connectivity on US 29, uh, modifications to any of the existing BRT service is well outside the scope of what we, uh, uh, well outside the scope of the plan. So again, Agreed. any kind of recommendations, we, we would defer that to MCDOT. Okay. 
Uh, let's see here. Uh, again, kind of <laughs> going back to the previous comment, I'm sorry, this is a little, little back and forth. Um, this is about um, establishing conditions for local, regional, and private bus shuttles. Um, that's somewhat outside of the scope of what we do. The plan does obviously support a lot more transit connectivity and more local bus service, but a lot of those improvements, again, would go back to deferring to WMATA and, and MCDOT. Okay. Um, this testimony is about um, expanding flash BRT into Howard County. So for a little bit of background, um, Howard County is in the thralls of completing phase one and phase two study of a BRT system along US 29 that would connect from Columbia, possibly to Ellicott City and maybe to Baltimore in the future. Um, we will, again, provide more clarifying language on how that will actually work. Obviously, there's, there's, there's a lot of more interagency uh, coordination that would have to happen, but it, it is a recommendation. It is something that, that Howard County is currently studying. Okay. And I will pass it on to Chris. Again, uh, for the record, Chris Van Alstyne. Uh, just going to quickly talk about travel analysis. Um, we do have a uh, we do have to apologize. We did include the section on travel analysis in in the, in the report. It is now in there, uh, so that is uh, a new section. Um, then briefly, excuse uh, yourself. <clears throat> and then uh, just very briefly, what the what the uh, travel analysis looks like. Uh, we're just going to talk about. Very abstractly, everything looks great. Um, just the, the broad shapes of these uh, figures, uh, what you want to see is something similar, if not declining, which is exactly what we see. So very minor changes. There are slight reductions in, uh, in travel time for vehicle, vehicle travel time, person travel time, uh, and VMT per capita. And the one thing that you do want to see increase is what's called the NADAM score, the non-auto driver mode share. So people, basically everybody who's not driving alone in their car, you want to see that increasing, and that's, that's exactly what, what we do see. So that is now uh, in that, that section for, for uh, travel analysis. And, and this will be in the body of the, of the section? That is okay. correct. That is in the, the body of the report. Just, just for my clarification, when you say non-auto driver mode, that is anybody that is in the bus or transit and, or bike or walk, uh, or HOV. Or, so, but yes. HOV is auto driver mode. Well, one is a driver. So it, it's a, it's a, the whole I, broad category of, of anybody who is not themselves driving their own car okay. is in this broad category. So if you if you're a passenger right. uh, in a car in HOV, you're you're in that that Adams category. If you're a transit rider, a bicyclist. Walker, your, your carpool, everything. Carpooling, okay, exactly. got it. Thank you. Um, any other questions on this? Okay. Nope. Uh, and then just last, a couple, um, not particularly transportation related, but uh, we did have uh, uh, comments that we, we should include um, some reference to Ultra Montgomery in the plan, which uh, we will we will include as well as. Um, some commentary on, on freight uh, being uh, a priority for, for uh, at least at the, the federal level, US-29 is a designated freight corridor, so that is uh, now included in, in the plan. Okay. And that is uh, it on transportation. And thank you. We have about 20 minutes more. Yes. So, so less than that. 
Okay, I'll, I'll fly through these. These are um, fairly quick and more administrative than anything, but for the record, Malene Jackson, co-leading the Fairland and, Mas uh, Fairland and Briggs Cheney Master Plan. Okay, so um, this is really about a positive comment that we received about the food system study. Um, staff agrees we're going to include it in the CIP table. Moving on to environment. Um, so there was comments about visibility um, having to do with tree plantings. Um, staff disagrees because um, there's um, security. Um, I'm sorry, the purposes of visibility and security could be addressed other ways. Um, we honestly feel like, um, excuse me, I'm kind of losing my voice at the same time. Sorry, um, we don't we don't support a special treatment for um, tree plantings. I think you kind of get that. I'm I'm going to move on. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, this one also is administrative in nature. We're just going to um, we could just want to clarify and, and mention the climate action plan in sure. this section and imp implementation. Um, so with regard to we're just going to add a column to um, the CIP table that includes pages and section references, another administrative change. That's good. Um, bike and pedestrian section. Um, uh, focus on, sorry, focused areas. Yes, we agree with this. Um, specific improvements can be added to the CIP table, another administrative change. Okay. Um, more clarification on whether um, the Randolph Road BRT lanes is long-term implementation. Again, another thing to be added. Um, oh, sorry, design. The, the design study could be listed right. in the short term. So that's a different table, but that's table 15, just um, adding something to the table. And um, that brings us to the to the um, schedule. And let me just also clarify um, that we are asking, um, if you're comfortable with all of the changes that we've gone over today, um, that we do not need to do June 1st as another work session. Um, if you're okay, we're gonna make the changes and have um, the chair, of, of course, review everything that we've done today. Um, again, the references that were in red are the things that actually will be done to the master plan itself. Um, we uh, and so today, if it's moving forward, we'd like to just work on those changes and get them to you as quickly as possible, versus meeting again for another work session. So this is I'm, the same okay. schedule I, that we I reviewed would, at I the would very like beginning. One, one other board member to be here for about to, if, if we're ready to vote. Oh, okay. well, I can ask a question sure. while we're waiting if for the other board member comes. Uh, this question is in general. It may not be just specific to this uh, master plan. And, uh, you know, I apologize if it is not, uh, you know, really uh, not concerning a master plan, but that's my first time to seeing a master plan. It's all good, and I saw that implementation. Let's go to implementation. My question is about implementation. And um, the whole master plan is that we are hoping that it comes to be real. And I know that um, 
many of them, it may not happen for a while. I saw that on uh, page um, you had implementation, and that was only for CIP, uh, for uh, short-term, mid-term, and long-term. But that is just CIP, uh, things that government can control. And I'm hoping that like those short-term that you have in that uh, chart at least is funded, because it's between now until five years. So you have a, a list of some CIP projects that hopefully they are funded. Then there is mid-term, and then um, a long term that uh, I do not know what is in regard to funding. To, in my opinion, if it is not in the capital improvement, at least somewhere to be space, it may not happen, okay? Uh, but then it comes that what are we going to do uh, specifically for this master plan within the short term? And that short term could be anywhere between zero to 10 years to make it more economically viable. Is that anything we can do? Or is it just we are at the mercy of the development uh, in a community to see what happens? Is there anything that we could recommend that be, that we be progressive to bring East County parallel with the, the rest of the county? Sure. Um, one of the things that they were commenting on is the food system study. Talk a little bit <clears throat> One of the things, <clears throat> I'm sorry, one of the things they were commenting on was the food system study. We have a, we had a positive, two different uh, Montgomery County Countryside Alliance and the Montgomery County Food Council. They're already working on um, food systems and for specifically to um, um, address the, the issues in Fairland and Briggs-Cheney. Um, that has an econ economic impact on this community. And if you look, um, um, there is a section, I just want to point everyone to the table that, she, that uh, Commissioner is referencing on page 110, um, and short-term short -term actions that can be done one to five years. We're kind of um, pointing out attention to things that are already, already underway, have been discussed, like for instance, the Fairland Recreation Park study. Um, Prince George's and Montgomery County are talking, and um, and there is a there is a master plan, I believe, that's happening on the Prince George's County, or at least um, some um, discussion about uh, future investment on the rec on um, Fairland Regional Park right. versus Fairland Recreational Park, and so then we're one commission. That action can happen sooner than later. So, um, and yeah, that I will have an economic impact yeah. on the community yeah. as well. So I was just asking that if there is anything else that could be done beyond that. Are you saying well, like private yeah, development? So, yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll jump in again. Uh, so one, in the implementation sec section that Molly's speaking from, the short term, really uh, putting a heavy emphasis on transit, on improvements to the parks, open spaces, trail connections, et cetera, amenities that uh, have, have proven, uh, especially in our life science uh, areas, that if you have all those amenities with housing, that again, in, in conjunction with private development, et cetera, as these start to redevelop, that's where we're suggesting the initial uh, improvements, uh, economic development uh, money goes towards. So really want to help uh, spur some, hopefully, some redevelopment of, of properties as identified in this plan. So that, that's where the initial lift is really uh, in, intended to be focused on. 
Yeah, and I just wanted to, because I know that you're concerned about private development, and, and typically when the county makes a public investment, makes a public initiative, and puts forth the effort to invest in public infrastructure, that's what drives private development. So as long as the county is taking ownership over the things that need to be improved upon, solving issues that are kind of longstanding for this community, the BRT is going to help bring access into focus for private developers. That's how we spark interest on the private development. We that's cannot true. force them to yeah, start developing their and, land. And the, the major thing we're doing here is changing zoning and adding for the possibilities that don't exist today. We don't know what they may be. We don't know if we will promote a, a extensive, more extensive market than we've witnessed before. Uh, but we're providing for that opportunity. And that should spur some thinking, at least. Now, hopefully, it doesn't spur the thinking that, gee, I'll wait till I get the market for a high-rise before I do a significant garden apartment. Uh, you know, there I have a little bit of concern about that, but I'm willing to go this amount of development for the sake of broad opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. I totally understand that. I was just asking maybe uh, uh, that what is in short term. I understand all the things that we are doing is going to help. But when I started the question, I said within the next right. five or ten years, short term, because a lot of us are here now, okay? We are not going to be here 10, 15 years from now. Is there any other suggestion that we put something now until all of those comes to fruition? I'd, yeah. like, to, I'd like to add another thought to this. The other major value of this master plan is that it helps to reset the narrative for the East County. As we all know, before Thrive Montgomery 2050 put 29 back on the map, so to speak, as a focus um, area for growth, uh, this was a part of the county that was intentionally determined to not receive the same amount of growth as other parts of the county. And so this master plan is taking the next step beyond Thrive saying, yes, the East County deserves the same uh, investment, uh, both public and private, as other parts of the county has received. This master plan is very much, in addition to the zoning changes, creating a new narrative for this area and saying that this is an area that is worthwhile uh, for receiving both public investment as well as private investment, as well as uh, the, uh, receiving uh, a wide variety of amenities that the residents there would like to have that other parts of the county receive. And so part of this is doing some messaging to the private sector as well, that this is now a priority area for the county. And so this is another reason why you should take another look at this. Yeah. And, and I really appreciate, thank you for bringing that up front. Because it was very interesting for me when I was reviewing uh, the history. I said, oh my God, now I know why, why this part, uh, and I used to live there for 10 years, why this part of the county uh, is behind. It was intentional. We had put in those, so I don't know. At least that's how I saw it. I, I'm sitting here just holding my tongue since I was part of that history. Oh, okay. And, and uh, you know, we had a council member who insisted that uh, Route 29 was not a growth card. It was the boundary of the, I, the border of the I-95 corridor, but wasn't a growth corridor itself in the context of the corridors and wedges plan. Mm -hmm. 
And I lived through all of that. And now I'm living through this. So I would appreciate a, a recommendation to allow the, uh, the uh, staff to amend the plan as, as indicated. Uh, allow me to approve their changes and proceed to uh, uh, submit this to council. I'd like to move that we approve the plan with the changes amended in the law to approve it and send it to the county council. And I second thank you. Any further discussion? And thank you for staff for for thank you. Uh, lots of questions Absolutely. bearing with uh, with us on uh, uh, on these uh, proceedings. Uh, all those in favor, say aye. 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 Five zero. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Good work. Good work. All right. I think we're adjourned. Uh, can we? Uh, all right. We're going to try to come back at one. No. Excuse me. Food's not here. Good afternoon. This is the planning board on uh, May 25th. We are on uh, item 10, the pedestrian master plan work session num number four. Hopefully we'll get through the plan and send it on to council from here. With that, I'll turn it over to Eli. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and forgive me for using your first name. But. That's all right. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Eli Glacier, for the record, the project manager for the pedestrian master plan. Um, we're here uh, in work session number four uh, with a pretty short uh, roadmap for the discussion today. Essentially, we hope to highlight changes that we made, substantive changes we made from work session three, um, highlight the staff recommendation to transmit the plan. Um, any discussion, and then we can also uh, identify next steps for the plan after it goes through the planning board. So um, with that, I think the probably the highest profile change we made as part of uh, after work session three was regarding uh, the sidewalk program. We had had a lot of back and forth about this over the past two work sessions. So the highlighted language here matches what was in the attachments, and um, this is just for your sort of review. Right, and it, it, it somewhat parallels the, the other comment we had on, on uh, comments from, from residents that, that says uh, we'll pay attention. Uh, yeah, right. So um, that's a separate, we added separate text elsewhere for that on B1B, which is sort of the second bullet here that to add uh, public engagement is essential to understanding the unique local context that may require changes in the design of a sidewalk project. See, how did I know that was on your second slide? <laughs> you read the staff report. <laughs> I didn't. Uh, so this is, this is sort of one I think that we deserve, we thought deserved to be called out by itself, and then the subsequent ones um, are sort of clarifying text for objective 4.1, which was the ADA accessibility, that um, sort of the topography um, that exists, um, sidewalks traveling up sleep, steep slopes will still be considered accessible in line with um, the ADA as long as they follow the adjacent roadway grade. Uh, the public engagement piece that I just talked about, uh, there was a question about what priority park locations meant in uh, key action B4H, so we added language that these are areas within parkland determined by Montgomery Parks to be good candidates for these amenities. 
Um, and then the, the last piece here was uh, we had a discussion about brick sidewalks, you may remember, and the, the, that recommendation sort of centered on maintenance of these facilities, and uh, it was the board's direction that we should actually have a standalone uh, key action about brick sidewalks and our preference for cement concrete sidewalks. So uh, staff developed EA1D, which is on page 119 of attachment A from the staff report that essentially says that the pedestrian clear zone should be constructed using Portland cement concrete in line with MCDOT's design standards. And, and, and our apologies to urban designers who are associated with brick manufacturers. <laughs> so those are, there are other changes that were made that were sort of smaller in nature and less substantive, but these were sort of the high level um, sort of big, big hits, I guess. Um, and if there's no comments or questions about those or anything else, um, we're all good. We can go. The staff recommendation would be to transmit the planning board draft of the pedestrian master plan, attachment A in the staff report, uh, to county council and the county executive, and for the board to transmit or to allow planning staff to make non substantive edits to this document uh, before transmittal, copy edits, and things like that. Now, what happened to the, the table that either electronically or in print allows somebody to view this from their perspective? If DOT wanted to see their obligations sure. under this, can they sort all of these things that way? If who, whoever other department wanted to see it. it. It seemed to me it sort of cried out for that need because there are so many recommendations and you don't want to force uh, DOT to review every recommendation that they don't have to review. Um, that's a great question. So at this point, what we did as part of the document itself was create a table uh, that identifies the lead and supporting agencies for each, for each key action. Um, I think, yeah, I can zoom in a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I think, there you go. I, I thought you were working for an optometrist. <laughs> So um, I think the goal of this table will ultimately be that you can filter by agency when, like, on the website. Right. But in this document itself, this is sort of the no, paper right. representation of that sort of thing. It, it, it's a way to say that. And, and as long as you have something with the, with the referencing, um, one of the problems I had was the repeat of numbers between uh, tables. Uh, I don't know how to describe it without looking at it in the plan, but um, you know, you say this is uh, priority one or something like that, and you have a whole set of locations and, and a number system. Then you have priority two or something, and you repeat all of the numbers starting with one again. Yes, so I think I have on the screen, there's the prioritization areas. Um, each of the tiers, uh, the numbers start over. Um, I think uh, staff could look into changing that um, to make the map references that you're referring to relate it, Even to if the you tiers. put a letter in front or something, if you wanted to, if I'm in a, I, but you should be able to just consecutively number so you don't have the same number for the same area, for different areas. We've talked about this a little bit. Um, I think I, uh, this might be different than what Eli and I came to, but 
Uh, I think we want to keep the number as short as possible on the maps. Otherwise, they'll get too cluttered. Right. And so rather than doing like A-1, which might get longer, maybe it does make more sense to do sequential numbering. Yeah. Uh, your choice. I Look, I just found it disconcerting that I was looking for the same number 10 on different maps. Maybe it's just me. But I, I think identifications this, are yeah. unique as opposed to... This seems like a uh, non-substantive comment that maybe we, if you guys are okay with, we could confer on and figure out what's going to show up best on the maps. Right. Um, Jason Sartori for the record, Chief of Countywide Planning Policy. I think what we could do is we can go back and talk to our communication staff and see what they think would work best from a, you know conveying the information clearly uh, to avoid confusion, but also to ensure that it still fits within and, and doesn't clutter the map. And so um, that can be, you know, something we take from, from this session. And, and one of the other thing I'd like you to take from this section is our conversations with the Fairland Master Plan, which is uh, to, to describe the BIPA areas in a way that makes sense between the two master plans. So I can touch on that. So the plans are obviously moving forward at the same time. Uh, the pedestrian master plan is, is making the comprehensive edits to the BIPA system. And I think that the Fairland and Briggs-Cheney plan, if I recall, is sort of is silent on that. And I think silence is agreeing that the, the prioritization put forth in the pedestrian master plan is what would govern going forward until changed. Uh, is, wasn't it more than, <clears throat> than just um, uh, the designation of the area? Wasn't it also the, the area of the area, you know, the map of that area, to make sure those are consistent? That the, Eli, could you bring up, so this is tier, could you bring up like tier one? Are, are you asking about the complete streets design guide area type designations or the BIPA? It's, it's BIPA areas I thought I was asking about. Uh, complete streets I understand and they have the geographies laid out in that master plan and that's mm -hmm. all okay. If I, could, if I can jump in, Tanya Stern, Acting Planning Director, what I recall from the conversation was the fact that the Fairland mm -hmm. and Briggs-Cheney master plan has quite a number of pedestrian bike facility related recommendations, but as I understand, some some of those may not necessarily be in a BIPA, <clears throat> but the pedestrian master plan does have a BIPA that um, includes for that community. And so how do those two sets of recommendations, I think, speak to each other? And you had suggested perhaps a cross-reference so that they don't have to repeat each other, but there's at least a recognition that there's a BIPA for this area that's in a different plan and could add that language in the Fairland Briggs Cheney Master Plan. That's my recollection of how the conversation went. As long as they are coordinated in some manner, shape, or form, that's obvious because these plans will be up there at the same time at Council. They'll have the, the same kind of situation saying, gee, how do these relate? And if you don't have something, they'll look for it. So. It's just good to be prepared. Sort of stuck on how to respond here because I don't know what the, I don't recall what the references to the Fairland Briggs Cheney, in the Fairland and Briggs Cheney plan to the BIPAs are. 
Well, I think in some way it's not really for us to put into this plan because there will be plans going forward. There are plans now that make reference to BIPAs, and we're not going to make reference in here to every other master plan that makes a reference to a BIPA somewhere. So I think maybe in that plan, I, I know that you've got some final edits that you'll be approving on that. Maybe we, there could be a line exactly. or sentence that I, makes I reference the to, the, right, right. To, to what's in the, the pedestrian master plan. Right. That's, yeah. I think that's what the discussion we can, was. Right. Yeah. This, so, I mean, this plan is what it is. Right. I, you know, just mm -hmm. alerting you to that we're so, working on the other. So we will, we will coordinate uh, with that the, their staff on potential language moving forward. So just to, may I want to make sure I'm clear. The request is for us to work with the Fairland Briggs Cheney plan team to include language in the Fairland and Briggs Cheney master plan. I think it, my yeah. understanding is just to a cross reference to say that the the BIPAs are in a different the BIPAs in a different plan. So just have a reference in the Fairland and Briggs Cheney master plan that the Fairland BIPA is in a pedestrian master plan. Something or something like that. Even if you if you reference if you have a future reference that that says future master plans may uh, recommend additional BIPAs. I don't know. Or, Modifications or, to. BIPA geographies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we could put something like that in the pedestrian master plan. Okay. I, I think that that's what subsequent master plans do regardless. I know. But if, <laughs> I, but obviously, but if it, yeah, if you feel that it's clearer, we can certainly find a place to put that in. I think so. Okay. Okay. Um, so I guess that's the staff recommendation, but before any voting or anything like that happens, I just wanted to share next steps. Uh, we would transmit the plan, the planning board draft to county council, the county executive, um, the public libraries. Uh, we would go through the normal sort of notification channels for um, the planning board draft, master plan planning board drafts. Um, and another next step is we will um, finalize and transmit the climate assessment for the master plan. Um, so we'll come back to the board uh, with a climate assessment for the board to transmit to council. Um, and then we will participate in the county council's public hearing and work sessions about the plan moving forward. And, and isn't there an evaluation up at council on equity? Uh, there is an equity analysis that the council does. Uh, That's this that's the Office of Legislative yeah. Oversight. They provide racial equity analysis for, um, actually not for master plans. They do that for legislation. With regards to master plan, the, the county's racial equity law specifically only references that the planning board must consider racial equity in its review of master plans. But the, the OLO does not do a racial okay. equity impact statement for master plans. They do it for, um, for legislation and I think ZTAs. Is there evidence in here that we've undertaken that review? Yeah, there's a we have a uh, racial equity and social justice statement as part of the master plan that identifies all of the all of the ways the planning process and the planning sort of the planning document itself sort of bring equity to the forefront and take uh, look at incorporated diverse voices and uh, diverse perspectives and things like that. All right now. Let me switch chairs because Commissioner Bartley isn't here. And one of the things he says is that um, 
I have, there were two things he says. Number, number one, that uh, even automated s speed cameras uh, pick out racial minorities because they are rushed to get to the job and they have no choices. I have no idea if that's true or not, or, or whether there's, since we have uh, speed recommendations in this plan, uh, whether that's been evaluated at all. And I'm asking on his behalf, so. Um, I, I mean, I can't speak to that specifically, but in our recommendations about automated traffic enforcement, you'll recall there was language that we added about uh, future u expansion of these programs should uh, consider equity impacts as part of oh, that. Oh, so. okay. And, and the other issue he wanted me to raise was uh, pedestrian barriers. And it seems to him from his observation that they're only put in where there are high percentages of uh, non-whites and, and that he would be far more uh, appreciative of um, the need for education in those areas rather than just physical barriers, which seem like fences to him. Do you have any response or anything you'd like to say on that? Um, I mean, other than, I mean, the plan does have recommendations for improved pedestrian education. Um, I think we, there was also public testimony in line with uh, what the commissioner sort of has alluded to there. And um, I mean, planning board, our planning staff, when we work with DOT in looking at many of these pedestrian safety issues, I think the barrier treatment is often a last resort treatment, and it's not something that we encourage uh, generally. So I don't, I can't speak to sort of the equity piece of that, but. But that's a great statement to say if it is a, a last resort and, and we'd look to education or other uh, ways to mitigate the problem first. Well, um, and <clears throat> one of the things you'll see, I mean, we, we talk a lot about protected crossings and that's the preferred, if you know, sure. to ha having pr protected crossings at intervals that are more ideal. Um, you know, people cross in, you know, mid block because they, they're not close to a protected crossing. So if we can get those better spaced, that's really where we've been emphasizing, uh, not adding more barriers to crossing like that. But maybe a sentence would help. Be, if that goes in the direction you're going. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know that you had the sentence that barriers are a last resort. Um, so I think what, um, just building on what, uh, uh, Mr. Sartori said, um, I think we do have recommendations in the plan about protected crossing spacings, and I think part of that is uh, also tied to bus stop locations. I think where we've sure. seen barriers across the county, I think uh, Randolph Road at Beers Mill comes to mind. Um, there are bus stops that are located in places that really encourage not oh, crossing sure. at the intersection. I can testify. So um, <laughs> one of our recommendations, like we're, this plan is really trying to address the root causes of those unsafe crossings and not trying to provide a Band-Aid, which is what the barrier is for something, for like an underlying issue. So I, that, 
I think that we're trying to identify, fix the root, the root causes of those issues. But you don't want to put in the one sentence that says barriers are a last resort. Do you have a recommendation for where, where we would put this? Because we we can we've got the document up, we can pull it up, and we can put it right in. But I just don't know. We don't have a discussion about those, do yeah, we? Pedestrian barriers aren't really pedestrian barriers, but they're barriers. Of course, they're not moving. Well, they're not. Oh, they're not. Yeah, I was just doing a search for. <coughs> All right. Um, so this is the plan. Um, we could potentially add something in this paragraph that I'm highlighting, which sort of introduces um, the suite yeah. of recommendations that I'm improve and expand. I got to P2 in two seconds. Yeah. Ex improve and expand protected crossings. Um, I, this is fun, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it could be right here. Um, and you did a word search, there's no other barrier discussion? I don't remember it from reading it, but barriers, fences, fencing, pedestrian barrier, various versions of all that don't really come up. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> short way of saying that. Uh, I don't remember on my read-through anywhere there in all my search versions of, don't come up with anything off the top of my head. I think that's P2 is probably what do you think? a yeah. place to do it. There you go. Barriers or fencing. All right. Uh, there you go. So I added text. Barriers or fencing that limit pedestrian crossing should be a last resort. Is staff satisfied with that? Is, is the planning board I think that's a, that? a good thing. I Okay. Okay. I'll, I'll get the non-vote of, um, <laughs> of a commission. So while we're doing this, should we just add in the the language you've asked for about BIPA prioritization? Yeah. Do you have a place for that too? Yeah. So if you go to the beginning of the BIPA section, sure. A <coughs> sentence. Can you can you change it so that it shows all track changes? Uh, this is the clean version. Oh. Okay. So this is the version okay. that we will transmit. Oh, this but yeah, show it as you're doing it so that it shows up as a track change. Show it as track changes. Okay. Yeah, while you're making the change. It makes it easier for us to see up here. There you go. Okay. I can type it. And yeah, uh, Give me a I had a location. Number. Is there a section number I can go to to see where you, go, where you are? Uh, on attachment A, it's page 134. Thank you. So I would suggest perhaps adding, again, on page 134, the second paragraph from the bottom. It starts, the prioritization in this plan is a guideline based on the best available information at the time the plan was approved by the Montgomery County Council. This prioritization should be reassessed as part of the pedestrian master plan biennial monitoring report based on available resources, lessons learned, and to ensure consistency with the goals of the plan. Um, and then perhaps we could add something like, furthermore, future master plans may recommend changes to the BIPA prioritization included in this plan. 
Well, it's not just prior. They might recommend new geographies, right? Yeah. 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 Just these changes to BIPAs. No. Well, the BIPAs are the geography and the prioritization. Geography and prioritization. So, okay. Maybe switch geographies. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. This is inventive. Yeah. <laughs> We're trying to be responsive. Yeah, immediately <laughs> responsive. So, um, okay. Other items? Yeah. <laughs> Anything else? No, I think that helps. Yep. You know, a bit because you'll always get the question: Do I have to go back and amend this plan because I'm doing a different plan? You see what I mean? And I don't want to absolutely require it. You may want to, but, you know, we we get to the fact that when you do a master plan, we say this is also amendment to 20 other plans. Yes. And that gets to be an unresearchable thing to know what that other plan is. Yeah. Um, but that's just me having used this stuff before. Okay, what else we got here? Um, that's all. That's all? Just the staff recommendation. The, uh, anything else from commissioners? Wow. i I, I got to say this is one remarkable plan. And I have been so impressed by the data that went into this. Uh, just, just remarkable. Um, and my congratulations to the staff on this one. Uh, I think this is an award winner uh, uh, down the way. Uh, I'm, I'm delighted that there'll be a minor association with my name on this. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, al although I got to tell you, you know, I had to admit my association with the Fairland Master Plan in the event this morning. <laughs> and 40 years later, that wasn't the, so positive. So um, <laughs> but it, it was good at the time. Right, it was good at the time. Uh, so this is this is just remarkable. Uh, so from here, we'll send it uh, directly on to council, and, and they will set a public hearing. Uh, Correct. And, and we'll see how it goes from there. Um, with all those amendments, uh, I'll entertain a motion. I move that we uh, transmit the planning board draft with the amendments uh, to the county council and county executive. And I second it. Okay. Seeing no further discussion, all those in favor say aye. 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 Uh, and we have a four zero zero. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good afternoon. It's May the 25th, 2023. Uh, uh, in our um, math deficient way, we are, after doing item 10, we are now on item 9. Uh, Planning Board annual uh, briefing updates on the Montgomery County burial sites inventory. We have uh, Mr. Crane uh, to present to us. Thank you. Uh, uh, thank you. And for the record, I am Brian Crane, staff archaeologist with uh, Historic Preservation. And I'll bring up our slides. 
Sorry. Uh, mouse isn't working. Oh. Well, it's working, but it's not. It's not responding to any clicks. Sorry. <laughs> I never have expectations that the historian is the expert in modern technology. Actually, I use computer applications quite a lot, but this one is not. <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite. What is it? Historians, maybe not archaeologists. <laughs> <laughs> so my, uh, in my undergrad one. Sorry about this. We, um, <laughs> it's showing on my screen, but um, it's not mirroring on our on the. On the there you. There we go. All, All right. right. Yeah. All right. There we go. And so, once again, for the record, Brian Crane, uh, staff archaeologist with Historic Preservation, and just to defend my computer application <laughs> skills. <laughs> so, so on on this on this slide, you'll see. Um, uh, at the top, the, the two middle uh, images are actually, um, that's a, it's a grave marker in one of our uh, cemeteries here in the county, and it's a normal photograph. Uh, and, and as you can see, you can't really make out the, the inscription at all. So next to it is um, a virtual image created uh, through photogrammetry and some other, uh, well, uh, reflectance transformation imaging software that allows for um, uh, a virtual composite image that allows for the inscription to be read. So we've done this in a couple of instances where we have been, we have been asked by members of the public about the stone where, which they couldn't read, and we've been able to produce images like this that essentially, it's like 21st century tombstone rubbing uh, yeah. and recovers, wow. the, recovers the inscription in a way that's legible and shareable. Uh, and below that is a, a GIS image that we'll talk about later. Anyway, so just <laughs> so um, this is a, a, the fourth annual update to the burial sites inventory. We had adopted the inventory initially in the spring of 2019, and we have updated the planning board each year in May since then. Uh, and we revised the inventory continuously over the course of the year as new information becomes available. And then in May, we asked the planning board to formally adopt those revisions that we have made. So we, uh, our recommended action is that this, the planning board adopt the burial sites inventory updates. So in uh, my presentation uh, this afternoon, uh, I, will, I plan to give a little bit of an introduction about the, the burial sites inventory program. Um, present the revisions that we have made over the past year for, for your adoption, uh, and then discuss a number of sort of issues and research initiatives that we have ongoing, uh, some explanation for some of our, our practices, and then other activities that, uh, that we have ongoing, uh, uh, project reviews, uh, information management improvement, uh, and uh, future research goals that uh, I'll be going over this afternoon.
The inventory was created by the Montgomery County Council in 2017 and guidelines for its implementation approved by the planning board in 2019 provide for the inventory to be continuously updated as new information becomes available and for the planning board to be briefed on those updates annually. There are two county ordinances related to the inventory. One that calls for the planning department to maintain and make the inventory public and the second requires that cemetery boundaries be defined during planning board approval of preliminary plans. The broader context for the Montgomery County burial sites inventory includes an increasing concern across the United States about cemeteries in general and African American burial sites in particular. In this slide, you can see a small sampling of recent headlines. As another reflection on broad public interest, the African American Burial Grounds Preservation Act was signed into law in December 2022, and the, and the senators who sponsored the original act have asked that the program be funded for $3 million for fiscal year 2024. The money would be available for preservation grants through a program administered by the National Park Service and the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Including this year's updates, the full inventory includes 336 total sites, uh, and those uh, that comprises 256 known locations and 80 approximate locations. Uh, in addition to those, we have about 38 leads that we are following at this time. These are sites for which we have some information, but which are not yet ready to bring to the planning board. And some of them we do anticipate being able to bring forward next year. What, how are you getting these leads? Uh, we'll go over that in a, in a minute, but um, ongoing research and sometimes uh, information is brought forward by the public. Um, there are also 17 redacted locations. Redacted locations are those where there is concern about whether the site could be vulnerable to vandalism if its exact location were to be made known. These locations are shown as the boundaries of the parcel rather than a specific point. And what you see here is a screenshot from MC Atlas. This slide lists the substantive changes to the inventory made this year, including sites that were revised or added, or where the location, of, uh, location confidence was updated. As required by the burial sites guidelines, property owners were notified in writing by certified mail about substantive changes to the burial sites inventory records on their property. And I, I'm not sure if I said it before, uh, to explain the difference between known and approximate sites. Uh, known sites are those sites for which there is visible evidence on the surface. It's an extant visible uh, cemetery, or there is very specific historical information about its location, such as it having been recorded on a plat map, which we will show you uh, in this presentation today. Approximate sites are those for which we have some historical evidence and we know approximately where it was, such as a family burial site that's referenced in a deed on a farm, and we know where the farm was, but we don't, there's no evidence for the, the burial site any longer, and we can't say exactly where it was, but we know well enough to put a record in the inventory so that people are aware of its probable location. These are the 11 sites that are new or updated. The Montgomery County Burial Sites Inventory initially adopted by the Planning Board in 2019 represented the cumulative work of many volunteers carried out over more than 10 years. 
That work was extensive but not exhaustive. Ongoing research to improve the inventory has added 19 sites since 2019. We continually review files and conduct research, particularly on approximate, approximate sites, to refine those locations and identify the locations of burial sites missing from the inventory. The update to the status of the Breedy, Cecil Davis, and Riggs Family Cemeteries and the Darnstown Baptist Church Cemetery are the result of routine review of cemetery files focused on improving the information available about approximate sites. Uh, there were 77 approximate cemetery sites in the inventory as of last year's update, and we continually conduct research to identify more exact information about their locations. The new sites were identified through a combination of internal research and input from the public. The Perry and Brooke Family Cemeteries were brought to the attention of staff by members of the public. The Perry Family Cemetery is shown in a 1955 plat map, while the Brooke Family Cemetery is referenced in late 19th century newspaper items. In the case of the Brooke Family Cemetery, staff conducted historical deed and map research to identify the most probable location for the original family plot. The location of the Perry Cemetery was surveyed as part of a plat, but the identity of those buried was unknown. Historical research found that at least one of those interred there included Erasmus Perry, who lived from 1760 to 1828, who served in the American Revolution and is the namesake of the Montgomery County chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution. The burial ground could also have included other Perry family members as well as those the family enslaved. As a note, the, the DAR used to mark Perry's burial ground as late as 1950, but when the area was redeveloped, they lost track of the location and have actually been trying to find it again. And so we're, I let them know that, that we think we found it. And so they were happy to, to know that and st stop looking. <laughs> anyway, the records of the, uh, for the Littlefield, Browning, and Breedy Family Cemeteries were identified or revised to, through the combined archival research and fieldwork of Montgomery Planning and Park staff, while the Magruder Hughes site was found by Montgomery Planning deed research. Research into the location of the Wheeler family graveyard was prompted by review of Maryland death certificates. Maryland death certificates after 1911 include the place of burial, and William Wheeler's 1915 death certificate states that he was buried, quote, on the farm at Edner, unquote. Review of historic maps and deeds for the area around Edner found the location and boundaries of the farm occupied by Wheeler. The approximate location of the cemetery is in the, the right-of-way of Medina Court, within 200 feet of where historic maps indicate the house was located. This positioning is based on analysis of family cemeteries in the inventory where both the cemetery and family house locations are known. That research indicates that most family burial plots were within 500 feet of the family home. The records for the Littlefield, Browning, and Breedy family cemeteries were identified or revised through the combined archival research and fieldwork of Montgomery Planning and Park staff, while the Magruder Hughes site was found by um, Montgomery Planning Deed Research. The work to refine the location of the Anderson Watkins Slave Cemetery began in May of 2022 in response to inquiries from the Chevy Chase Historical Society. 
The cemetery is referenced in an 1864 deed, which states that it should not exceed one-eighth of an acre and that it continued to be used by Watkins and Anderson as a burial ground for African-Americans held in slavery. That deed does not include the exact location of the six-acre parcel, but it does reference adjoining properties. Painstaking research and mapping of the adjoining deeds and analysis of historical maps have suggested a much more likely location for the cemetery than what was originally included in the inventory. And what you can see at, uh, left on the screen are the, uh, are the parcels that, that I had to map out that were referenced in, in the deed. And you can see there's a approximately six-acre rectangle that was owned by Watkins uh, in 1836, but no longer owned by him after 1889, implying that it was the six acres that were sold. Staff shared the results with the Chevy Chase Historical Society, who in turn shared the information with their members. Staff met virtually with one member of the public who attended the Chevy Chase Historical Society presentation, who had questions about how the conclusions were reached. The Chevy Chase Historical Society asked recently that we consider renaming the site to something that reflects the location rather than the names of the enslaver families. We think this is a good suggestion and will work on finding a better name. We will also review other names in the inventory for similar issues and plan to bring that back to the planning board at a future update. The current inventory includes at least 18 cemeteries that have been at least partially exhumed and the update includes four cemeteries that have, that have purportedly been exhumed and moved. We have included these sites in the inventory uh, from its inception, that is to say, oh, stop, uh, the, the original location in the inventory from its inception for several reasons. The text of the law creating the burial sites inventory defines a burial site as, quote, a physical location where human remains were buried in the earth or entombed in a mausoleum or columbarium. We include the original locations of exhumed cemeteries because historical and archaeological research shows that exhumations to physically move cemeteries are frequently incomplete, and it is likely the burials remain in the original location. This possi possibility is particularly an issue for the graves of people held in slavery. Prior to emancipation, the graves of people held in slavery may have been in or near the burial grounds of their enslavers, but possibly unmarked marked with perishable materials, or marked with unmodified fieldstones that may not obviously be grave markers. There are numerous examples of incomplete burial removals in the region. The Riggs family moved their ancestors' remains from their family plot to St. John's Cemetery in Olney when they sold the property in 1930, but more burials were found in unmarked graves in 1981 during development of the former farm into the Oaks landfill. Snowden Funeral Home moved these graves to the poor farm. The Dunlop family graves were moved in 1926. However, during subsequent residential development, additional graves were reported from the same location, interpreted at the time as possibly being those the family had once enslaved. Another important example of an incompletely moved cemetery was documented by archaeologists for M.SHA in neighboring Prince George's County. The Simon Hill Cemetery in Hyattsville was purportedly moved 50 years ago, but archaeologists working in 2017 found dozens of graves left behind. The largest such case in the region involves Columbarium Harmony Cemetery, an African-American cemetery in Washington, D.C., that once held thousands of interments. According to my colleague, D.C. archaeologist Ruth Dracoli, Columbia Harmony was moved uh, in 1959 to 1960, 
and a court-appointed monitor supervised the opening of every burial plot for the remains to be collected and boxed for the move in a land swap deal with a developer. Everything else associated with burials was specifically excluded from the move, so headstones, coffins, markers, etc. were left in place. A recent project impacted a very small portion, about a third of an acre, of the original 30-acre cemetery. Associated archaeological investigations found 279 interments, or coffins. Of these, only 36 had no human remains, at least 75 had articulated remains, and virtually every plot still had coffin or cemetery furniture, headstones, etc. One of the reasons we are concerned about exhumed family burial sites is the possibility that there may have been additional graves nearby, potentially including the graves of people the family enslaved. We know that many burial sites associated with enslaved African-American people in Montgomery County are likely missing from the inventory. Currently, there are only 18 known burial sites in, the, in Montgomery County in, in the inventory thought to have been associated with people held in slavery, including the Button Farm Cemetery shown at left. But there must have been many more. The research and data we compiled on enslavers in Montgomery County for the street renaming project is helping us understand in a detailed way where people were held in slavery in the county. We are using those data together with the information in the burial sites inventory to help better understand the locations and settings for the burial sites of enslaved people to better predict where we might find others. I think I got ahead of myself, sorry. Um, possibilities for places to expect the burial sites of people held in slavery include locations within or immediately adjacent to, but separate from the burial plots of slave holding families, entirely separate burial grounds within the boundaries of farms where people were held in slavery, and black community cemeteries established by free blacks before the Civil War that may have been located in places already used as graveyards. Among the latter may be the Spencer Family Cemetery, established in the early 1800s, shown in this photograph. Uh, and the photograph you see includes wooden markers that were visible uh, in 1979. Unfortunately, all of them are now gone. Um, there was a local property owner who remembers seeing them and took me to the area where he remembers seeing them, uh, and we recorded that location. But unfortunately, uh, the, the markers were, were removed at some point, and we don't know what happened. To better integrate burial sites data into a single system that is sustainable for the long term, Historic Preservation staff worked with Information Technology and Innovation Division staff beginning in 2021 to migrate the burial sites inventory to the Planning Department's Hansen Information System, which maintains regulatory and development application data. In 2019, the inventory consisted of information stored in three places, a GIS database, volunteer-generated PDF information forms, and additional information in a Microsoft Access database. Staff integrated the information from the GIS attributes and volunteer forms in a single relational database in Hansen in 2022. This past year, staff synchronized edits between GIS and Hansen to complete the integration process. This means that data are entered once in Hansen, and our GIS system pull the data from there. Eliminating multiple data entry points will help prevent errors in the information system. Staff are in the process of generating new information forms for all cemetery records, though additional work will be needed for the forms to be ADA compliant. 
Staff also worked on changing the way approximate sites are displayed to the public in NC Atlas. Because boundary information is available for only a small number of sites in the inventory, the locations are displayed as a point. In the case of approximate sites, however, this can lead to a misleading understanding of the location's precision. Working with GIS staff, historic preservation staff identified an alternative display tactic in MC Atlas where the size of the point for approximate cemeteries grows larger as a user zooms in closer to the location. This helps convey uh, that the exact location is not known and that the point is intended to convey an area within which the site may exist. This slide lists the major categories of projects for which we are or have conducted project-related reviews. Section 106 refers to the section of the National Historic Preservation Act that requires federal agencies to consider the effects of their undertakings on historic properties. The Managed Lanes Project that sought to widen the Beltway and I-270 has been one of the largest in the region in many years and is still ongoing. The Poor Farm in Rockville and the Moses Tabernacle 88 Cemetery in Cabin John are immediately adjacent to the proposed project. Mandatory referrals are projects undertaken by agencies of Montgomery County. These sometimes have the potential to affect cemeteries, especially those in county rights of way or in other land owned or managed by county agencies. County law requires that new sub subdivisions on parcels within a cemetery define the extent of the cemetery and place it within its own parcel. Lastly, work on parcels with a cemetery that are also included in the Master Plan for Historic Preservation are subject to the review of the Historic Preservation Commission through the Historic Area Work Permit process. Historic Preservation staff routinely perform field visits to cemetery sites in the burial sites inventory to confirm or improve map locations and learn more about how small family, church, and community cemeteries are cited and laid out. Staff visited 28 sites on or under consideration for listing in the inventory since the last inventory update in 2022. Actually, it's 29. I was out to one yesterday. Um, <laughs> staff have visited over 100 sites listed in the inventory since the program was initiated in 2018, accounting for almost one-third of the total sites. This slide shows a field visit with Parks historian Jamie Ferguson to the Browning Family Cemetery site included in this year's update. The site was discovered this past year by parks archaeologists within Little Bennett Regional Park. This slide shows Montgomery Planning University of Maryland intern John Aubin and Frank Plummer from St. Mark's United Methodist Church in Boyd's using equipment historic preservation staff acquired this past year to create a detailed map of the cemetery markers. The equipment, called a plane table in Allidade, is easy to use and planning staff hope to train area volunteers in how to use it to map cemeteries and create inventories for cemeteries their congregations manage. We are regularly contacted by members of the public with questions about cemeteries in the inventory or with inquiries about cemeteries not yet included. More than 40 people contacted the department on more than 80 occasions in the last year about a range of cemetery sites and issues. Outreach efforts since the last update have included contacting property owners and land management agencies about newly added cemetery sites through certified mail and responding to inquiries about these additions. These inquiries also included the interest of a local Boy Scout in finding an African-American cemetery for an Eagle Scout project. 
Montgomery Planning coordinated with the scout, the scout's troop, and interested members of the public in identifying an appropriate site at the Jerusalem Mount Pleasant Cemetery in Norbeck. In the fall of 2022, preservation staff were contacted by a descendant about the location of the Wesley Union Cemetery in Potomac. Staff provided information about the history and location of the site in planning inventory files and met her on site. The county executive's office has expressed interest in how Montgomery County can assist descendants in addressing concerns raised about the cemetery's current condition. On several occasions, staff met with or provided information to members of county agency staff, executive branch staff, and council staff about the history and background of the cemetery, as well as about relevant uh, guidance for the investigation and preservation of cemeteries in our burial sites guidelines. Staff began working on identifying archaeological and cemetery sites that may merit consideration for for addition to the Master Plan for Historic Preservation in 2020. This involved reaching out to potentially interested public groups within the county about their interests and concerns. Staff have continued to work in the past year to identify and correct GIS data errors within the Master Plan data, especially with respect to the overlap between Master Plan sites and cemetery sites. Montgomery Planning is conducting research that will inform future evaluation of cemetery sites for inclusion in the Master Plan for Historic Preservation and had requested funding in FY 2024 for a contractor to develop a cemetery historical context that will be a critical component of such evaluation. This item will not be funded, so we will begin, uh, we will plan our next steps to accomplish this goal through our own internal work program for this next year. Nonprofit preservation groups in Montgomery County regularly request support for conducting non-invasive archaeological studies to identify cemetery boundaries and the extent and location of graves within burial sites included in the inventory. Use of ground-penetrating radar, GPR, has proved to be effective in accomplishing this work. However, the planning department does not presently have the equipment or expertise to conduct such studies, and the cost for hiring a consultant to do the work is out of reach for most small volunteer organizations. Historic Preservation has initiated conversations among the Maryland Historical Trust archaeologists, as well as MNCPPC archaeologists working in both counties, about acquiring the equipment and expertise to conduct GPR studies where appropriate. MHT recently acquired GPR equipment, and their archaeologists received training from the vendor. Now, MHT archaeologists use this equipment for a small number of select projects across the state supported by MHT. Historic Preservation is considering adding purchase of of GPR equipment to a future fiscal year budget request. Staff continue to consult with MNC PPC archaeologists about the parameters of when such equipment would be used versus situations where a developer should be expected to hire a consultant to do this work. Uh, And to return to an earlier slide, once more, this slide lists the substantive changes to the inventory made this year, including sites that were moved or added, or where the location confidence was updated. As required by the burial sites guidelines, property owners were notified in writing by certified mail about substantive changes to the burial sites inventory records on their property. And our recommended action is that the planning board adopt uh, the inventory updates, and I'm happy to address any questions that you may have. 
Thank you for a very thorough report. I uh, note that uh, Eileen McGucking is in the audience if she would like to say anything before we uh, take action on this. Thank you. Um, nice to, to see some new and some old faces up there. <laughs> I, know it's I admit gonna, I'll be to being the old more. face. Up You're there. the old face. I've been seeing your old face for decades, and I, <laughs> I'm glad to work with you, Jeff. Um, so um, I'm, I'm Eileen McGuckian, and I'm here to represent Montgomery Preservation. It's an umbrella nonprofit which, uh, since 1984, has championed and promoted historic sites and landscapes in the county. Um, in 2018, MPI uh, sponsored the Montgomery County Inventory, uh, Burial Sites Inventory Revisited, which revisited something that had been done, started by Peerless Rockville a decade before. And that both of those projects uh, tried to uh, get all of this information together in one place. And when uh, Brian describes different pieces of things. We are guilty of providing a lot of those, but um, we didn't have the technology or the time to do, to do all of that, so we're, we're very pleased that he's doing it. Uh, we also sponsored um, and got through the um, legislation that led to the planning board's responsibility for this burial sites inventory. And I thank you very much for taking that charge seriously and allowing me the to continue the tradition of commenting when you receive this annual staff report. So I don't know how well-versed or how interested each of you is in historic preservation, but you're on the path to learning how important it is to Montgomery County and how important a role the planning board plays in the future of sites, of streetscapes, buildings, suburban communities, rural landscapes, and burial sites. Cemeteries are historic resources and they're very precious. As much as any library, they hold the keys to our past and the links to our future. Every individual buried in a family plot, a churchyard, or a community cemetery has a story, but every cemetery also has its own history. You likely have noted the increased interest in burial sites throughout America in the past decade or so. And you may also be aware that lack of respect for African-American sites has historically been in play here. We have too many examples of neglect and desecration and a lot more catching up to do. And I think you'll be pleased to know that since passage of our local legislation and, and since Brian came on board, a number of coalitions have formed to share information, publicize concerns and successes, and to assist one another. So what we, what we hoped is working. So I first want to compliment Brian Crane. He continues to perform at a high professional level in his unique position. Only a handful of counties in Maryland assign an individual to monitor, to visit, to protect, um, and to help preserve historic cemeteries, and we are fortunate to have him. As you could tell from his, his presentation, he's a tenacious problem solver. He continues to tackle issues of unclear ownership and unknown site locations and boundaries developing predictive models, models that seem to work, and often he comes away with answers long hidden away. He responds to requests for assistance from property owners and advocates, and he assists, assists with public forums on relevant topics, participates in those Section 106 reviews on behalf of specific sites affected by <laughs> public projects, and he uh, posts th thoughtful uh, blogs. 
I also want to compliment um, the other side of your staff, cultural resources in Montgomery Parks. Um, they are looking professionally at the, see, the, so far, 16 cemeteries that are located within Montgomery County Parks. This past year has seen more conservation assessments, working with descendant com communities, creating signage, and ending up with a better understanding of these sites while starting to plan for their better maintenance, their preservation, and interpretation to the public. Brian mentioned some of those instances. I hope you'll recognize this progress and the need for even more when you consider upcoming, upcoming budgets. I want to point out the growing level of interest in those African-American burial sites, which in Maryland and Montgomery County roughly cover one-fourth to maybe almost a third of all known sites. I participated in a survey and a report last year to the Maryland General Assembly, which was requested by the Assembly, on the situations and needs of African-American cemeteries, which you can read through a link on MPI's website. Some of its solid recommendations will lead to proposals in the 2024 General Assembly session. Some suggestions are in order. Uh, in, conditioning, in, in addition to continuing the good work described by Dr. Crane, MPI would like to see more public interaction and participation now that COVID is out of the way and we can start coming out, including educational sessions for property owners and caregivers who may or may not be property owners, uh, acquisition of the ground-penetrating radar device with a trained uh, technician that he mentioned, uh, for use in delineating and detecting burial sites. GPR is a necessary tool for non-intrusive disco discovery, and I can attest to the demand for it as more and more people understand what it can do and sometimes are disappointed in what it, in what it can't. <laughs> uh, speeding up the process of consolidating information for those individual site forms and making this more accessible and friendly to us all, sharing this data is crucial to researchers, to owners, and to the descendant communities, black and white. Uh, further protection of Montgomery County burial sites would um, uh, be advantageous having legislation, news legislation that covers more circumstances beyond just when a property is undergoing subdivision. We would like to require disclosure of the existence of a cemetery during real estate transfers, just like you do existence of master plans. We'd like to require that these sites show up on tax and other maps, both county and statewide. We would like you to encourage uh, Montgomery County's SDAT department to provide current data in the tax records. And perhaps you may want to think about creating an administrative review process for contested site inventory listings. They will happen. And then lastly, uh, MPI and I think Brian and planning staff can offer you a tour of selected burial sites. We can do the you know, the one week long tour or with the one day, four hour tour, whatever, <laughs> we'll select sites. But I think you'd be pleasantly surprised at the variety of landscapes, um, sculptures, types of monuments, materials used, inscriptions that uh, capture lives going back to the earliest century through today. Some burial sites are listed in the master plan, um, usually connected with family farms, with churches, African-American communities, and towns throughout our county. So thank you for listening. Thank you for having me back. And I'm happy to answer any questions that you may have now or later. Thank you. I just want to start immediately. And, and I'm thanking you for uh, all of your guidance along the many decades we've been associated with 
each other. I, I, I thank our staff for being diligent in this area. Uh, a lot of your recommendations, though, will by necessity go to my successor. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you have your recommendations in writing that I can pin on as well. We can do that, and we'll incorporate you in the advocacy group asking for some <laughs> of those too. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> what are you going to do with all that time, Jeff? Uh, 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 <laughs> Revenue Authority facility inspections. Okay. Other people would call it golf, but uh, okay. it's other. It's better that way. Uh, any uh, further comments or questions? I, I just heard you, you were talking about that. I, th I think you were talking about talking to in Montgomery County about STAT, that to include the information. And uh, I think that they have open government, uh, open budget, uh, and they have a lot of their data and information mm -hmm. that they just put it there. And I, I'm sure they would be glad if you contact them to put those information in. It's something that you want everyone to have access to it. Absolutely, I agree. Yeah. And they need to be in public documents that yeah. they, when the public does not deal with planning or, or the property owner, they need to be on the, the public tax maps so that people will mm -hmm. know that those sites are there. Yeah. Yeah. Identification is a major part of this, and yeah. so is education. Yeah. I would just point out we do include the locations in MC Atlas. They're part of all of the, yeah. uh, and, and that is, uh, mm -hmm. Freely available to the public, right? But MC Atlas doesn't connect it to Estat. Uh, you know, I saw. Well, well, MC Atlas pulls from Estat, right. so 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 a, a user in MC Atlas can see what real estate prop properties include records in the burial sites inventory. Uh, the right. other thing that I was thinking was that the real estate associations, because any time that is a land record transaction. You want people that they're purchasing anything uh, to know what is either on their land or what is close to their land. Yes. And this is something that could be incorporated, you know, if you work. Because everybody wants to know that. It's good for everyone. Sure. There's no requirement to include that information now. That was one of our suggestions, yeah. that that be included. That you work with yeah. them, that to include yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, as that does have a lot of things on their maps and their sites, um, but over and over again we find that cemeteries are not listed mm -hmm. or um, descendants have been paying taxes on these should be exempt properties for years um, or they just don't have any idea of what they are and they don't have previous owners. You know how SDAP will keep previous deeds and uh, often those are incorrect. So mm -hmm. what the kind of information that Brian is pulling together painstakingly um, is, is helping with all of that. Commissioner? Oh, my comments, just this fascinating. I'll ask you a couple questions once we're offline, but that's just mm -hmm. and I, I, I did note that uh, burial sites do not include places where ashes were spread, mm -hmm. which would have been a complication beyond my imagination. That would be but all many over of, the world. Yeah, but, but many of those, um, are included in um, existing cemeteries now. Um, everything from you know green spaces to um, a lot of um, columbariums and so on. Columbarium. And and um, 
what you think of as community cemeteries and church cemeteries or religious cemeteries will often keep track of those. But as Brian says, the death certificates don't go back far enough and often you have to rely, well, you find them in the deeds, you find them wherever you can. Right. Uh, columbariums are included in the inventory. Mm -hmm. So, so right, well, if a, you know, a, an urn is specifically, is specifically placed, those locations are included. Right. Uh, it's just that, you know, the spreading of ashes, Right. Th this is hard enough to do and yeah. document. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, I'll entertain a motion to approve the uh, changes to the burial inventory. Yeah, I move that we adopt the burial sites inventory updates. And I second that. Okay, seeing no further discussion, all those in favor say aye. 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 Four zero. Zero. Thank you very much. Thank you. I think that concludes our session for this afternoon. We are adjourned.